Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the So Video Games podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we are playing it, we will be talking about it. Today we are recording on May 16th, 2019. It's a little strange though, because in an unprecedented move, Brad and I actually recorded banter yesterday and the show today. So technically, this is recorded over a two-day span. Um, we don't really have a reason for that other than things were going on long and we both had to get on with our lives. But either way, we are constructing the show as one giant thing for you today, so it doesn't matter. We could have recorded banter six weeks ago and I could staple it onto the end of the show and you would never know the difference, although I did just spoil it for everybody. But nevertheless, my name is Corey Motley. I am a staff writer at GameCritics.com. I am also 50% of the show. However, I'm kind of sort of 33.3 repeating of the show this week because we do have a special guest. But before we jump into the details about that, of course, I would like to introduce my partner in crime for every single episode, my co-host, Brad Galloway, who is the other 50% or maybe 33.3 repeating of the show this week. He is the editor of Game Critics. How are you, Brad? I am doing good. I gave you props for adding the repeating at the end of that. I wondered how <laughs> you were going to handle that. So uh, I'm very impressed. Uh, yeah, we don't have uh, guests often. I think uh, this will be our third time ever having a guest. So that did kind of throw our recording off. And just to give people a little bit of a peek behind the So Video Games curtain, not only did you let the cat out of the bag by telling people that we recorded over two days, even though they probably won't be able to tell, or hopefully won't be able to tell. <laughs> and really, I mean, ultimately the reason we had to go was because I had to cook dinner for my wife. So she was going to be home soon and I did not want to have headphones on if she walked in the door and she was hungry. <laughs> so sometimes you got to make a judgment call and I think I made the right one. Had food on the table before she got home. Everything was lovely. So uh, we are here. We're going to continue. We're going to get it back on track and I'm glad to be talking to you. Yes. If she, so if you had, if she had come home and you had had headphones on and had, and had just started recording like the main bit of the show, would she have just launched her purse through the air and hit you in the back of the head during recording? <laughs> no, no. She, the only thing that would have happened is that I would have gotten a very stern look <laughs> and then she would have went to go eat like guacamole and chips or something. And she would have been too full by the time I finally got dinner on the table. So dinner would have been ruined. And I would have felt really guilty. But no, no purses would have flown through the air. No violence would have ensued. Uh, it may have been a slightly chillier on my side of the bed that night, but uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Okay, well, I mean, either way, you made the right decision on um, putting a stop to the show yesterday and then so we could record it today. But um, why don't we, so we kind of teased a little bit to an interview situation we have going on. Um, I'm going to let you take the floor to introduce the interview situation because you actually know our interview subject or you have known him uh, before yesterday. I didn't meet him until we spoke yesterday. So why don't you tell our lovely listeners about the interview we did yesterday, which I will insert in a minute and, uh, and just kind of preface everything for them. Yeah, absolutely, you guys. So uh, we recorded this yesterday. It is with a good friend of mine named Doug Walsh. Um, people listening to this podcast probably don't recognize his name, but if you've ever been inside a GameStop or if you've ever flipped through a strategy guide for a video game, you probably know his work. He's one of the most prolific strategy guide authors that has ever been. 
Uh, great guy. He's turned out a number of really amazing books. Uh, he was in the business for quite a long time. And we met, I believe, through Game Critics, and we became good friends in real life because he just so happened to live not too far from where I lived um, a while ago. He lives in a different place now, but that's how we got to know each other. And he has just put out a new book, not a strategy guide, because those have kind of gone away, but it's kind of a memoir about writing strategy guides and being inside the game industry in a role that very few people can ever claim to have been. Uh, his book is called The Walkthrough. Insider Tales from a Life in Strategy Guides. It's out in paperback. It's out in Kindle. You can find it everywhere. We'll have details uh, at the end of the segment. Uh, but Doug was kind enough to join us yesterday. And so we are going to insert that pre-recorded interview right here. All right. Today for episode 131, we have a very special guest and only the third ever guest to the So Video Games podcast. So you know this is a special occasion. In addition to myself and Corey, as usual, we have with us a good friend, Doug Walsh, a personal friend of mine, Doug Walsh. Uh, he has been a writer of video game strategy guides for a long time. One of the most prolific dudes out there. He does great work. Um, if you've ever picked up a strategy guide, I'm sure you probably have read some of his work without even knowing it. So uh, as we all kind of know, strategy guides are not really a big a thing anymore as they used to be, but that has not stopped Doug. He has continued to write and live life to the fullest and just be kind of a man around town. So we're going to be talking to him today. Uh, Doug Walsh, thank you very much for coming to the show. Welcome. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, yeah, I wish I could say I'm still doing it, but as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, Prima and Brady Games, they merged a few years ago, and then Prima got the axe this past November. So uh, currently uh, unemployed in that division, but I'm still keeping busy with the games and other writing. Excellent, excellent. So yeah, let's let's start off with some basics. Um, I guess the first thing, I mean, tell us just a little bit about yourself, Doug. How old are you? Where are you from? Uh, that kind of thing. Basics. Yeah, so I'm uh, mid forties. I live in Western Washington. Moved out here in two thousand after falling in love with the area um, during repeat visits to Nintendo's headquarters for a bunch of N sixty four strategy guides. Actually, so that's uh, gives you a clue how long I go back in this business. Um, yeah, you know, pretty active in the mountains out here, and uh, love gaming and writing. And uh, my first novel came out earlier this year. And uh, I guess one of the reasons we're on is to chat about the uh, the memoir about the strategy guides that I have releasing uh, this week, May 16th. Absolutely, absolutely. We will get to that in just a moment, and I'm sure everyone is real excited to hear about that. Corey and I have uh, read that. I think it's a great read, and I think it'll be of much interest to our listeners for sure. Uh, before we get to that, though, Doug, how do we know each other? How do we meet? I want to say that it was probably through GameCritics.com. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, it was the forums way back, I think, before I even moved out here uh, when I was still living in North Carolina. And then uh, once I did move out here, we started meeting for lunch and getting together. I remember playing Coldcept on the PS2 and oh, trading good cards. Times. Back good when you times. had to have the memory card. Uh, that, those are good times, real good times. Oh, excellent. God, Coldcept, man. That brings back memories. I remember you uh, were a big fan of Walls, and that would just piss me off back in the day. But uh, <laughs> we right. had many good matches. That is a wonderful game. Uh, so, Doug, tell us real briefly. Um, I guess I bet a lot of people don't really think about where strategy guides came from or what they were all about. Or just, you know, you just walk into a GameStop, and there's like a bunch on a rack, and you just, you just kind of walk past them and don't think about them too much. But it's like a whole world, or I guess it was anyway, and it was a whole separate kind of a thing. Tell us real briefly, now I know you touch on this in the book, how did you ever get into strategy guides? How is that a thing? How did you fall into that? 
So way back in 2000, I happened to uh, meet a guy who was looking to subcontract out some strategy guide projects for IGN and for uh, GameSpy and the 1-900 numbers. And because um, he worked for Brady Games, but he was too busy with these uh, doing that to have time for these other projects. So I started doing guides for him. Like I did Shenmue for IGN way back in like 2001, um, Grandia 2, um, a bunch of like, uh, you know, kind of forgotten titles now. But then uh, he needed a co-author for a project with Brady Games and he recommended me. And I guess the rest is history. I uh, went on to write over 100 for Brady Games in that span. Um, So kind of like the way the strategy guide things come about is, uh, you know, publishers like Brady Games or Prima, um, they'll pay like huge upfront licensing fees to the game publishers to get exclusive access to the games. And as part of that agreement, we get access to the game a few months before it comes out. We get handed the game, we sit down, we play it, we record video, we write the walkthrough based on the video. We do all the screenshots. Sometimes we even have to assemble the maps from overhead video and screenshots of that stuff. Um, you know, people always uh, assume that the developers have a big hand in it or that they give us reams of data or tell us where everything is. And that's actually not true. Um, most of it is just the author finding it all on his own. Um, and that's that's one of the things that usually surprises people about it. Oh, absolutely. I remember the first time I came to your house and you kind of showed me your setup. And I was like, what the fuck is going on in here? Why are you doing all this work? Didn't they just give you all the maps and all the... <laughs> hint codes and all the secrets and you're like nah man i'm just going through it and i just i remember being totally like taken aback at like holy shit like that is a ridiculous amount of work so i kind of paint the picture for us um i know that you often got code like in your house but you also went to places too so i guess if you could touch on that a little bit but basically what is it like to be a guy like you who just has this game and they're like yeah go to it like i mean how do you even start to even put something together like that yeah so you know usually i'll spend the first two or three days on site at a, um, just playing through the game as much as I can, kind of getting a feel for what the game's asking of the player. And during that time, I'll be thinking about, uh, you know, how I'm going to structure the book, what kind of data we're going to need, and, like, what assets we need to request. Now, it doesn't mean we'll get them, but I do always have, like, a running list of, you know, okay, we need bestiary data, we need ballistics data if it's, like, a shooter. Um, you know, we need maps, we need character art, item art, all achievement icons, you know, all these little things that you just have to ask for. Um, but then it's just a matter of, like, okay, new game save, maybe two new game saves, and you just start playing through as methodically as possible, recording the video. And then, um, you know, usually for every hour of gameplay footage that you record, you're spending a good maybe hour and a half to two hours with that same hour, like writing from it, um, taking screenshots, all that stuff and plowing through. Being on site um, was often fun because there's just no distractions and you're able to just work long hours. But I remember one of the, uh, speaking of like how, uh, you know, we don't get much help with these. When we arrived on site at Gearbox for Borderlands 2, and I, I talk about this in the book, but uh, one of the, I think it was one of the VPs, he had said that, um, when it came time to develop Borderlands 2, they referred back to our guide for Borderlands 1 because it was the only single document that said what was in the game. They, <laughs> like, because these studios, they're not really, uh, you know, they're not trying to archive everything they do. That blows me away. That is absolutely insane to me that you would, I mean, not you, but like a developer would put this much work and they have a whole team and they're putting this thing together and like crafting this hit. And, like, nobody fucking saves anything. You don't have any lists of what you did. I mean, that 
totally blows me away, dude. Well, I, 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 you know, I don't want to speak for them or any other developer, but I'm pretty sure they do have some of that. It's just, you know, usually nobody knows, like, well, what was the most recent version of it or like did, did we end up using this or did we cut that and so the guidebook in a lot of ways is like a time capsule and it it shows like everything that the game was when it released all in one place interesting so let me ask you man um i guess when you get these assignments or i guess when you got i mean i gotta keep remembering this is all kind of in the past we're talking about this <laughs> now but recent no past. the glory days have gone by yeah recent, recent past. past recent past um so I guess when when these things were, were still being assigned out and when it was still going gangbusters, did you specialize in any kind of game or like were you better at doing one thing or another? I mean, because we're all human. We all have our preferences. We all have our likes and dislikes. Like, did you ever get a game where you're like, oh, my God, I hate this genre, but I got to do it. Or, you know, oh, I hope I get game X, Y, Z because that's my favorite kind of game. Anything like that? Or was it just like was it just a job? Did you just get a game and just went to it no matter what? So when I was first beginning, um, because my writing sample that I submitted was uh, based on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, I very quickly got typecast as the action sports guy. So I did all the Tony Hawks from three onward. I did the Matt Hoffman's, the Kelly Slater, the um, Sean Palmer Snowboarder, any of those types of games. I did all those. And I kept begging to branch out from that. And um, so I eventually ended up kind of doing most any genre with a couple of exceptions i never wanted to do um an rts um, i enjoyed playing them a little bit in the 90s but i knew i was not the right person for those um brady games had kind of like an author's retreat weekend one year back like gosh this was back before the world of warcraft beta and um they started to mention um putting a team of authors together for the for wow and me and a couple other guys just immediately pushed back from the table. We're like, okay, we're done here. We're out of here. Like, that was not going to be the right game for me. Um, <laughs> I vividly recall absolutely dreading having to do the book for Halo Reach. Um, when I got that phone call, it was the head of Brady Games who called to ask me like to go and meet with him and um, pitch Microsoft for us doing that book. And I was not a Halo fan. I ended up falling in love with that game. It ended up being one of my favorite games of the Xbox 360 generation. Um, so, and then that ended up kind of kicking off a whole bunch of uh, shooters for me and Gears of War. And see, the thing is, is like Brady Games for most of my career only had two authors under contract. Like I spent most of my career uh, under contract for about nine books a year. So me and the other fella, Tim Bogan, we kind of had, you know, first dips on a lot of projects. Like he did all the GTA stuff. I was right away like asking for all the Gears of Wars, the Bioshocks, everything like that. And it, and it just kind of worked out that way. Excellent, excellent. Well, I guess that kind of makes me wonder, when you got an assignment, I mean, maybe you thought it was going to be your thing, but did you ever have a point at which you're like, man, I just don't understand the nuances of the genre or I need some kind of like outside help to kind of get me through this? Like, did you ever find yourself stuck in that way? Did you have to, like, call in, like, a like a shark to help you get through some particular game or another? Or were you always able to uh, kind of struggle through on your own? No, you know, the thing is, is, like, once you start doing this for a while, and, I mean, I know you, you and Corey probably play a ton of games, and I know, I know for a fact that you, Brad, play just about everything that comes out. Um, you just start to kind of understand what games are asking of players. Um, the one exception, I did a book for uh, Death by Degrees, which was the Nina Williams spinoff from Tekken. Um, it was kind of like a poor man's Metal Gear Solid. 
with a really convoluted control scheme that you had to flick the dual stock, uh, the dual shock sticks in various directions to do combat moves. I sent in the final chapter for that book with an email that just said, I still have no idea how to play this game. Um, <laughs> but I did get through it. I rolled credits on it, but man, I couldn't tell you how to play that game at all. That reminds me of about any time I write a review for Brad and, or we talk, sometimes we'll talk about games to bring him to the show and we try to say what the story of the game is. And we're like, do we talk about the mechanics? We could talk about the shooting. We could talk about how good it feels. And then whenever we talk about the story, we're like, well, really, I have no idea what's going on in this game. I can tell you how it feels, but really, I can't tell you the story at all. So that <laughs> sounds a little bit similar to something we've been through. Oh, you're reminding me of doing the guidebook for Bioshock Infinite. Um, I was on site at Irrational, and it was like company policy. Whenever anybody questions the story, um, it seemed like everyone, no matter who I asked, they would just say, it's quantum. As if like oh those two God. words excused every plot hole you can imagine in that game. Uh, that was so frustrating because, you know, a part of our job was to, you know, talk about, in writing the walkthrough. You got to kind of have to make sense of the game a little bit. But man, that one... You know, years later on repeat playthroughs, it started to make a little more sense to me, but that was a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds ridiculous. Well, okay, so kind of following that thread a little bit, that does not sound like kind of a whole lot of fun to work on. That sounds kind of frustrating, actually. But, like, what can you share with us uh, maybe, like, what what one or two books did you have, like, the most fun working on, and which ones did you just fucking hate working on? <laughs> uh, the most fun... You know, I'd have to go back all the way to Conker's Bad Fur Day uh, for the for the N64. And that was just because, uh, you know, me and my co-author and the editor and the mapper, we were playing four-player multiplayer every afternoon of that game. And, you know, back in 2000, that was, you know, you didn't really get to do that much back then. So that was totally new. Um, I absolutely loved doing the guidebook for Wind Waker um, just because the game was so magical for me. And then, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have really good co-authors, especially recently, like Joe Epstein. I've done a lot of books with him um, and working on Super Mario Odyssey with him. That's the only game I can think of where even after playing it every day for a month, we were still kind of like turning around in the office and grabbing each other and being like, holy crap, check this out, you know, because you're still finding these nut lovely little secrets in that game. Um, those, I think, you know, they jump out to most. And then, of course, like I had great experiences at Epic um, doing all the books for Gears of War. And, um, you know, I talk I share some of those anecdotes in the book about, you know, blowing up Cliffy B with a two piece with the Nasher or, you know, having uh, Dom's death spoiled for me by the by the staff there. So lots of good memories come from that. So those are good things. Tell us some bad things. There must have been some miserable days. There must have been some stuff that you just fucking well, hated to do. Share some dirt, man. Okay, some dirt. All right. Well, I could say doing the Enter the Matrix guide was less than fun. Um, <laughs> it's the only time I ever broke a controller in a developer's studio. Uh, that that was embarrassing. I had to go out to Best Buy at lunchtime and buy Warner Brothers a new con video game controller. <laughs> that goes to tell you how frustrating that project was. Um, you know, the other thing was that we got like just with Diablo three and I have a whole chapter devoted to each of these games in the book, but, uh, with Diablo three, you know, that whole online only aspect of it, it didn't occur to me beforehand, like before I went to blizzard to work on it, but that would mean like every time there was a new build or a battle net glitch, like I would have forced downtime 
And I ended up having to start over on on Diablo 3 like every other day because Battle.net server was just constantly crashing. And it wasn't just me being affected. You know, half the studio wouldn't be able to work whenever the server went down. And because I was trying to replicate the end user's experience, I really wanted to minimize the use of uh, debugs. So I didn't just like, okay, give me a level 53 witch hunter or witch doctor rather. Um, you know, I would start over from scratch almost like every day. It's, it felt like, and uh, that was just monotonous to kind of play through act one over and over and over, hoping that the game wouldn't crash, hoping that the new build wouldn't disrupt uh, my game save from the prior one. You know, it was just, that was a lot of a headache and uh, ended up spending about 90 days on site at Blizzard doing the book for Diablo 3. Largely due to that, actually. <laughs> so it seems to me like because you're, just from these stories of uh, having to like start everything over and over again, would you say that you are like an incredibly patient and understanding person and, or did you have any kind of like rituals as far as like maybe like meditation or like yoga or anything that helped you like reset yourself and like center yourself as sort of like this frustration was happening around you as far as having to start the games over and over again or like encountering bugs and stuff. I remember your Star Fox story from the book about the last boss, how you only had half the health you were supposed to and you thought it was, uh, you thought it was like an actual in-game thing, but it ended up being a bug. And so with like with stuff like that happening and like with the Diablo stuff, was there like anything you did that really like kept yourself like centered or lighthearted or anything like that as you were playing? You know, for the most part, I love this job so much. I tried to never let it get to me. Um, even with Diablo 3, like, and um, I guess I should back up for a second. So I took two years off from doing this. Uh, my wife and I essentially uh, more or less bicycled around the world for two years, kind of wanted an adventure of my own in the real world. So like I was doing all the Diablo stuff right before I left on that trip. And I was kind of winding down, you know, the career. And I didn't know if I would do it again on the flip side. Um, but it, uh, it never really bothered me that much. I mean, it would be frustrating of course, but there's only so much you can do. I mean, the, you know, this, you have this multi-billion dollar game that is everybody in the studio is having problems. So you just kind of, you know, you grumble to yourself a little bit, but there's not much else beyond that. However, when I returned home from our trip and I started up doing strategy guides again in 2016, it just seemed like every game had so many more issues with it and none probably more so than the very last guidebook I ended up writing, which was for Darksiders 3. That game was, uh, there were whole swaths of that game where it was just unplayable even up until the week of my deadline. And that was just maddening. I mean, that was at the point where my wife was even interjecting and saying, okay, that's it. You're not, you're not doing this anymore. It's not good for your health. It's not good for the peace of the house. You know, it really started to wear me down at the end. Um, maybe meditation was something I should have looked into, but <laughs> it was, uh, and Darksiders three was a fun game. I enjoyed it, but man, it was just working on the guidebook for that was a nightmare. Wow. Wow. Well, we're almost at the end of our time here, Doug. I want to touch on a few other issues um, outside of game books for a second. Now, we we kind of know that uh, strategy guides are no longer a thing. Um, I kind of want to get your feeling. Are you? I mean, obviously, you need you need a job, so that's kind of a big issue. But like, do you do you feel sad that they're gone? Do you feel like it was their time? Like, I, what are your kind of thoughts on being someone who is in so deep on that side of things, and now that those things are done, and now what are you doing? 
after that? Like, what what is what's filling your time now? So, I am sad. I am sad because you know a lot of us grew up with these books. You know, playing video games, having the guides on our lap. I mean, I have a sitting behind me. I have a guidebook that I bought for the NES. It was it covers like thirty games, and I played through Goonies 2 on the NES going through the maps for um, in that book over the phone with my my stepbrother Um, so I like I'm pretty emotional about strategy guides and also as everything goes digital I feel like strategy guides were the one physical object that still gave our hobby some sort of like tangible heft to it Um, and it's really sad to see that go away now that said the ending, the end of this all has been on the wall for years. I mean, back in 2012, 2013, we were having open conversations about, geez, I hope we all have a job next year. Um, so the fact that it took until 2019 is actually kind of surprising. Um, as for me personally, uh, I've been fortunate enough to, uh, you know, make the jump towards writing fiction full time, which is um, a great way to not make a lot of money. And uh, so, <laughs> I can I can vouch for that. Yeah. Absolutely true. <laughs> so, uh, you know, no, fortunately, um, the novel I had come out in January, Tailwinds Past Florence, has been pretty well received. Um, the walkthrough that came out this week, um, you know, that's kind of something I only decided to do in November, the day after I got the email from Prima saying they didn't exist anymore. And it was an idea like I wanted to write a memoir about all my time doing this for 10 years. I've been jotting down notes of some of the anecdotes and stuff that I include in this, in the book. Um, but other than that, like uh, this week I head to Florida for a writer's retreat. I'm outlining my next novel. Um, fortunately, my wife has a, a really good job and, you know, with benefits and everything. And, and it's kind of uh, given me a couple of years to get this uh, writing thing going. If it takes off, great. And if not, you know, maybe I'll be uh, looking for a job at one of the local studios as a, as a writer. We saw, um, I think uh, Sucker Punch was looking to hire a writer for Ghost of Tsushima. So uh, as a Japanese buff, uh, that that kind of interested me a little bit. But we'll see. Well, on um, I wanted to ask you kind of to piggyback off that a little bit. Um, obviously, you've been writing strategy guides for like a million years. Uh, have you ever thought about or has anybody ever asked you to sort of like pivot your knowledge from writing about video games with strategy guides into maybe writing for a gaming site in a way that would be like like news articles about games like gaming journalism or doing reviews for games or even doing like marketing for a game studio or something like that has anything like that ever crossed your path or have you ever thought about that you know it's it's actually kind of funny i've never been asked by any of the websites to do any writing um and i kind of feel like that just goes with the complete anonymous nature of us doing these strategy guides even though our uh, our names are on the covers of the books. We definitely feel um, kind of invisible within the gaming community. Um, that said, I did uh, while I was on my bicycle tour. Um, I think it was Dark Horse uh, reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in uh, writing the uh, the content, the copy for uh, World of Warcraft art book. Um, and then there was something recently where I got asked to submit, um, you know, a, a potential table of contents and pitch for uh, for a book about ninja you know the streamer um but those neither of those things ended up working out um i don't have a lot of interest in working for a game studio to be honest with you one of the things that um was perhaps most special of all about the strategy guy job is you know you'd come in when the game was just about done 
you'd work on it for six weeks and you'd be on to your next project a couple of weeks later. I, I don't know how developers, QA teams spend two to three years on the same project. Um, I, I couldn't do it. I, I know I couldn't. My attention span wouldn't allow it. Well, I'm okay. I'm glad you brought that up because in sort of like to step back in a topic that's slightly away from the book, as I was reading it, I thought about, I wanted to ask you, cause there's like maybe like two or three times in the book, you touch a little bit on, you know, sort of like as you're in your secluded corner, like cubicle or conference room working on this guide, um, you like every once in a while would cross paths with developers or you would be able to get a sense of like the morale of the development studio or if the developers were being treated well or if they seemed like they're not being treated well. And right now, as I'm sure you know, because you probably keep up with gaming news, like um, unionizing development studios, uh, that's like a huge topic right now in video games. Like development studios are trying to unionize and there's been a lot of um, articles recently from like Kotaku and Polygon and other sources about um, working. It seem, it pretty much seems like every time a giant AAA game comes out, there's like a news story a week later following it up that talks about how awful the working conditions are and how the workers are treated horribly. And given that you were able to see a little bit of that, like as you worked on the strategy guides, do you have any like thoughts or opinions or any insights about like unionizing studios or anything like that going forward? You know, I, I it's something I've thought about a lot lately, especially, and it's uh, this will be unusual for anybody who knows me listening to this. I don't really have a strong opinion on it. Um, it's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I got the joke there. I yeah, got the joke. Good. It's, um, you know, it's just one of those things where I think it's so personal and to be on the outside. I mean, yeah, I did spend, you know, 90 days at Blizzard, but I can't really attest to what those folks went through over the long haul because, you know, when I'm there, I just want to get it done and get home to my wife and my dog. So I don't mind the 13, 14, 16 hour days. But again, it was only for, you know, three or four weeks at a time. And then I'd go home and come back a month later. Um, so I, I really don't know what it's like. I mean, there's certain studios that I was at where you can tell that everyone felt like looked like they were beaten down and exhausted. And then there's other studios where I would run into people at one in the morning in the hallway and they looked you know, like they were having the time of their life. So I think it's so personal. It's really hard to say. And I don't, I don't really think it's my place to say. Okay. Fair cool. Thank you. Sorry to punt Fair on that one, but you know, I, I kind of have to. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> no worries, man. No worries. Well, um, Corey, did you have any other questions? I have, I have maybe like one or two more, but I want to leave some time for you. I know I talked a lot during the segment. Uh, I don't think I have anything specific. I mean, Brad, if you're not going to ask what he's playing right now, that's definitely something I want to know, just playing for that, pleasure. That but... was my last my last question I was going to get to. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's... Okay, we will get to... Okay, let's do it now. Let's do it now. Doug, are you still playing games? Are you sick of games? Are you burned out on games? Do you still love games? What's up? And if so, if you still love them, what are you playing right now? I love games. I may love buying them more than playing them these days. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to realize things about myself with games like my 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 gaming experience has shifted anything with the words open world crafting survival it's a definite no buy like as much i i admire red dead 2 from afar i have no interest in playing it um and the same goes for a lot of games um so now i'm kind of uh i'm playing cuphead on the switch um now that it came out to the switch i'm playing that and then just yesterday i downloaded this little game for on steam called islanders and did either of you guys play Bad North on the Switch? 
I've heard of it. I have not played it, though. So Bad North is like a minimalist RTS game for the Switch. Um, And it's absolutely fantastic. It's very simple, um, deceptively difficult as you get further on in the game. Well, there's this new game called Islanders that came out. And it's a minimalist city builder. And you go for a high score and it's completely zen. And it's just the perfect game to like wind down your day with. Um, I have Sekiro. I really want to play Sekiro. And it's just like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I want to do that to myself. <laughs> oh, oh, I've got words on Sekiro. I'll be covering that. <laughs> have you seen me tweeting shit about it over the last couple of days? All the time, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, talk about the uh, definition of a... Uh mixed feelings on that one boy that has been a real fucking roller coaster uh, i am so. also playing I, I started playing um resident evil 7 the other day because it was on sale for uh um steam had a golden week sale for all japanese games and i picked it up for like 15 bucks and oh my god the first 90 minutes of that game were so terrifying and so uncomfortable <laughs> and it was like being trapped in the absolute worst nightmare um no more playing that at night with headphones on lights out that it, it just it, it was <laughs> It was horrifying. It reminded me of Fatal Frame. I don't know if you guys remember that. Fatal Frame oh, and yeah. Fatal Frame 2. Oh, yeah, big time. Big time. Those were always what I said like was the scariest games ever. Now, RE7 is even worse, <laughs> at least for me. Oh, dude. I have a copy of it. It's been sitting on my desk for like ever since it came out, and I have not even opened it because I am too scared of it. Like I bought it because I felt like I needed to, and I, <laughs> I have not played a moment of it because we talked about it, and that was enough to put me off. And you... I've just reinforced that I made the right decision. I will probably never play that game. <laughs> it's so good, though. It really is. <laughs> oh, oh. All right, Doug. Um, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, we're just about to wrap up. Before we be say goodbye to you, um, tell us again the official title of your book, where people can get it, and how much it is. Okay, yeah. The official title is The Walkthrough, Insider Tales from a Life in Strategy Guides. And it's available paperback and digital, um, basically wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Kobo, um, IndieBound, and you can uh, read an excerpt of it at my website, DougWalsh.com. Excellent. Um, well, thank you for being on the show. Do you have any, do you want to say like your uh, Twitter address or anything, or are you on like Instagram or anything you'd like to plug? If not, that's fine, but you're welcome to do it here. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, you know, all my social media links are available on my website, but it's uh, Doug Walsh Writes on Instagram. On Instagram. Um, Facebook is uh, Doug Walsh.author. And then over on Twitter, I think I'm Doug underscore Walsh 75. And that would be all of my links. I'm not on LinkedIn. No plans for that either. <laughs> So, hey, guys, thanks so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Um, your podcast is great. I was listening to a bunch of episodes the other day, just kind of chasing them one after another. And it's good stuff. I'm really happy to be a part of it. So thank you again. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. A pleasure to have you. It's been great to talk to you again. I know uh, we should probably have lunch someday. We keep talking about it. We haven't got around to it yet, but we should definitely do that at some point. And uh, I feel honored that you are the number three guest ever on our show. We don't have a lot of guests, so I'm glad that we made a spot for you. I am honored too. All right, guys, have fun. Enjoy the rest of your show. Have a good one, Doug. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We really appreciate Doug sitting down with us. And I say sitting down with us. He could have been standing for all I know because we were chatting over the internet. But really appreciate him taking some time out of his day to chat with us about his book, Um, It is very good. Something that I don't think I mentioned during the interview that I did like about it is that not only does it kind of give you a peek behind the curtain of the strategy guide 
industry, if you will, like Brad said before the interview, but it's actually a pretty good nostalgia trip for sort of like mapping out major video game releases, like pretty much back from the Atari up until like current day gaming, um, because he was in the strategy guide business up until just a couple of years ago, uh, pretty recently. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a fun, like nostalgia trip about games, but it's also, um, you know, really informational about that side of the industry. Like Brad said, something that you don't really see or that not a lot of people worked on, but Brad, before we move on to games, I just have a fun little question for you. Um, sure, sure. Can you remember, I don't know if you were into them and if you're not, that's fine, but can you remember the last strategy guide you bought, the last physical guide you bought? Um, the last, I never really (laughs) bought strategy guides. I bought, I buy art books more than I buy strategy Mm. guides. Although I'm sure that I probably bought one for monster rancher back in the day. I'm sure I have one of those. Uh, I probably also have one for metal gear. I wouldn't be surprised if I have one. Uh, but to be perfectly honest, um, Doug gave me a lot of his, uh, books, because he would always get like a bunch of like copies as the author to hand out to friends and family. So I have a stack of his books. Oh. Uh, didn't didn't buy them, but I got them for free. So I don't know if that counts or not. Did you use them? Uh, no. I usually just like <laughs> flip through them, flip through them and uh, would look at the art and always, you know, I mean, one thing that we didn't really cover too much um, in the interview with Doug was like, you know, I would come over to his house when he would have a new game in and he'd be like, oh, Brad, coming over. I got, you know, X, Y, Z. That's. You know, it's like the, the pre-release, it's like the alpha, and I mean like the alpha as in like a true alpha, not the not the bullshit alphas and betas that they've kind of become today, where they're just like playable demos. Like, back in the day, like, you know, like when it was buggy and he had like this, all these different builds and he was like calling the programmers on the phone and be like, oh, I can't get past this thing and how do I, you know, what do I do? Like, like true, like real early, early stuff. And I would come over to his house and it was just like, I was just so blown away by how hard he worked. I mean, I gotta say... I mean, I love Doug. He's a great guy. And, like, nobody on Earth knows how hard, not only Doug, but, like, all the rest of the Strategy Guide authors worked to get these books put together. You see them for, like, you know, $9 or, like, $3 on sale at GameStop or whatever. They're all dog-eared and beaten up in some spinner rack, and nobody really cares about them. But, man, these people poured so much time and effort into these books. And I remember just looking at Doug thinking, like, God damn it. I'm so glad I'm not you because I don't want your job no matter what, man. Like, it just looked like hell. So I want to give a shout out to Doug and all the rest of the strategy guide authors, because for many years, I think they were kind of the unsung heroes of the industry. We kind of just took their work for granted. They didn't really get a lot of the limelight. Um, But man, what the effort and the hard work and the sweat and blood and tears and the time away from families and the lost sleep that went into putting those books together was, I mean, as someone who saw it like secondhand, not firsthand, but secondhand, I was just like, I couldn't even believe, uh, couldn't believe how, how torturous that was. But if not for those guys, I mean, we wouldn't have all these wonderful books. And so I think they are a really overlooked and kind of unsung aspect of the game industry that we really owe a lot of thanks to. Because uh, as Doug mentioned in his segment, um, with everything kind of like being E and electronic these days and, you know, physical versions of anything going away, the fact that these artifacts still exist as a thing is, is pretty cool. So we kind of uh, owe those guys, I think, more than we realize we do. Yeah, I agree. And pretty much everything you said is kind of covered throughout the book. So if any of that sounds interesting to anybody that's listening or, you know, if you're still on the can decide if you want to like pick it up or whatever, um, that a lot of that stuff is covered in the book and it's all very interesting. Um, Brad, may I reveal to you the last strategy guide that I bought? Please do. Um, I It was 
for Resident Evil 4 on GameCube in 2005, whenever it came out. Oh, that must have been a really big seller. I don't know if Doug did that one, but that that game was bonkers back then. That must have been a huge <laughs> seller. That must have been. Yeah, I remember going to buy the game because I could not... I think I was like a sophomore in high school whenever it came out, and I couldn't drive yet. I think... I might have been a... I don't know. I was either a freshman or a sophomore. And I remember my mom taking me to go pick it up because it was like one of those games that I knew I absolutely had to have on day one. And whenever we went to, I think it was GameStop to buy it, um, the, I wasn't even really planning on picking up the guide, but the guy, of course, at the counter was like, oh, do you want the strategy guide? It's right here. You know, trying to like upsell me on it a little bit. And I don't even remember being particularly excited about it, but I kind of looked up at my mom and she like thought it seemed like a good idea. So she just bought it for me too. And I... Honestly, the first time I played through the game, I didn't read the guide because I didn't want to, like, spoil myself on anything that happened in the game. So I think I played through it once without the guide. And then the second time is whenever I probably used it to find all of, like, the blue crystals that you could shoot out of the... that were hanging from the trees and stuff and just, like, collect all the weapons and everything. But even back then, I guess, when I was in high school, I was still worried about getting spoiled on stuff. So I guess some things never change. Well, one follow-up to that, I, I did buy some strategy guides. Um, I, not a lot, but I did buy some. And I you know now that I'm thinking about it, I really only bought them for games where I really liked the game a lot and I really wanted to have the art, and art books were not nearly as common back then as they are now. I mean, we didn't have Amazon and, like, buying things online for a long time wasn't really even a thing. I think we kind of take it for granted now. But, I mean, there was a time before the Internet, there was a time before you could just jump online and buy anything within three clicks, you know? So I think I ended up buying most of them just because I wanted to have the art or to have some kind of, like, I don't know, keepsake or token of my game. I don't think I really bought them for, like, the secrets. Were you more of, like, a I need it for the secrets after I finish the game person, or were you, like, a keepsake person, or do you just not have many in general? Well, I didn't have many in general. I think I'm probably wrong about this, but literally the only two books I can remember having were the one for Resident Evil 4 and I remember I had one for Doom 64 um, which oddly is the first Doom I ever played and I loved it but it was kind of hard for me back then because I was probably like god I was probably like 12 or 13 whenever that game came out and I specifically remember telling my mom that I wanted the Doom book because I think I was, I like couldn't figure out how to get through a level, but I really liked the game or something. And I specifically remember her saying, if you clean your room, I will buy that strategy guide for you. And I was like the kind of kid who had like clothes all over the floor. I had like cups and plates all over my room. I was messy. I was disgusting. And I cleaned every square inch of my room that day. And true to her word, she took me to Walmart right then and there and bought me the strategy guide for Doom 64. I realize this is not answering your question. I just thought it was a funny anecdote. But I I guess in that case, I did buy it too. Be, I think specifically because there was something I couldn't figure out in the game and I wanted, and I suspected that if I was having trouble that early in the game that I would need help later on. Um, and But for like Resident Evil 4, I, I didn't need it. I just got it at the time and I ended up using it but I never really use them for art or anything. I think I just use them for tips for the game or for like after I beat it the first time, kind of like 100%ing them or something like that. But I also kind of grew up in the era where by the time I was probably 15 or so, 
the internet was already like established enough for me to get on like gamefacts.com and look up any guides because I remember looking up guides for like Resident Evil Code Veronica on the internet and kind of like at that point I didn't really look up or I didn't buy strategy guides anymore or maybe I would like if I were at like Barnes and Noble, I would like look through a strategy guide, but I wouldn't buy it. And I would, which is maybe a terrible thing to do. I don't know. But I just like would look through it and be like, oh, here's some stuff that I need to do. And then I would just try to remember it whenever I went back and played the game instead of like buying it. Um, but I was more on the tips and tricks side and less on like the art book kind of side of it. Let me ask you this then. Um, we're going we're gonna to do like an age check real quick here. <laughs> So, me being the requisite old dude of the podcast, and you being a slightly younger old dude. Uh, so, do you remember? Do you remember a time before GameFAQs existed? Yes. Okay. So, do you remember like Tips and Tricks magazine, or how magazine game magazines at that time had tips sections in them? I actually was subscribed to Tips and Tricks magazine for. The longest time, and fun fact, I don't know why I did this or why my parents let me do this, but there was one time where I sent in fan mail to Tips and Tricks. I was probably like 10 or 11 years old, and I sent in fan mail to them, and I sent them one of my school pictures that was taken at school (laughs) when I was a young child, and there is one page and one Tips and Tricks magazine out there somewhere where at the very top of the page, there's like a little circle where like if you were on that console's page, like the Sega Genesis, it was like a little circle in the top center of the page that had like the Genesis logo or the SNES logo. They put my picture in their magazine in that little circle. And I don't actually think I have the magazine anymore. I mean, they went on a print ages ago, but... I, I at one point I had that copy of the magazine. I remember opening it up and seeing my tiny little picture in there. So yes, I I was subscribed to Tips and Tricks, and I actually had my picture in one of the issues. Oddly enough. Oh my God, that is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> uh, I bet we could probably track that issue down. I bet we could find it. Uh, okay, so one more question then. So going back even further than Tips and Tricks and magazine tip sections, do you remember a time when it was very common for publishers to offer? Nine one nine hundred phone lines to ask for help on their games. Do you remember that time period? I do remember that. Oh man, did you ever call one? I never did because I well, first of all, I don't think I ever needed to. I mean, I'm not saying like, oh my god, I was so good at video games and I was like seven years old. But I d- I never thought I needed to. But I also I think there was like this fear that if I called a tips hotline that it was that my parents were going to get a phone bill and it was going to be like a $200 phone. Like, you know, it was going to be like $10 a minute to call this number because back then we used, um, like, phone phones, not like cell phones. Um, and yeah, it's so, actually like with, with, with like, wires attached to yeah. like, the wall and stuff. Yeah. And so, like, and that was, like, a thing back then is, like, if you called certain numbers, like, they could upcharge you for the amount of time you spent talking to them on the phone. And that was always, like, a fear of mine that if I had ever called, like, a tips hotline for a publisher or a developer, that it was going to end up being, like, a $10 a minute phone call and that my parents were going to get the phone bill and they were basically going to, like, punch me in the head and be like, why did you call this number? <laughs> so I do remember them, but I never, ever called them. All right, all right. Those were those were wild and crazy days back then. <laughs> I, I definitely called a few times. I can remember once when I was 
um, struggling, and I called more than a few times one month because I'm a kid. What the fuck do I care? I don't pay the phone bill, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was an uncomfortable conversation to have with my dad at that time. So <laughs> we got through it, though. We got through it, but uh, wild and crazy days. So interesting to see how the industry of helping people has kind of changed over the years. Uh, but yeah, now we're kind of in, in a new era. I think it's basically youtube and game facts and nothing else exists so i guess we say goodbye to the strategy guide and uh and one more time thanks for doug for coming aboard so folks if any of this sounds interesting if any of this sounds remotely interesting or if you're old enough just remember those days or you're just curious go check out doug's book uh it's called the walkthrough it's available everywhere and it is very reasonably priced uh i have written a couple books i know how much work it takes and the amount that doug is charging is basically peanuts throw him some peanuts buy his book (laughs) and i bet you'll be happy with it yeah, and also I I hate to use this as a selling point for a book, and I don't know if this would offend a Doug or not, but it's also a short read. Like I read it in about two hours. So if you're one of those people who's like, oh, I never read books because it takes so long to read them and it can't hold my attention, like it's like a two-hour read. It's pretty short. It basically just skips a bunch of really interesting highlights of kind of Doug getting started up until the very end of his career. I mean, he's still, like, working, but he's just not doing strategy guide stuff right now. And just, like, touches on a bunch of interesting stuff that he did over the course of, you know, his, like, decades in the industry. But it only took me about two hours to read it. So it's short. It's a nice, like, capsule book that has a lot of interesting stuff in it. And it's funny, too. Like, he has, like, funny anecdotes throughout it mixed in with factual information about his time working in the industry. But if you're somebody who... You know, because I know a lot of people don't have the time to spend a lot of time reading or don't want to spend a lot of time reading because they could do other stuff. It is pretty short. It's like short and sweet. uh, And it's just a really lovely book. If you have ever grinded for levels in a JRPG, if you watch whatever random talking head is on YouTube just because you got nothing else to do, you can read that. (laughs) So take two hours out of your day, read his book. You won't be sorry. Okay. Enough of the hard sell for Doug's book. I think we should probably talk about some games, Corey. What do you think? Yeah, let's talk about some games. So we've got a handful of stuff to talk about this week. This is a very Brad-heavy games show because I've only played like one and a half things this week. But nevertheless, the show will probably still be pretty long because we have the interview, we have banter, we have a ton of stuff. Um, But Brad, because I am hosting, I will let you take the floor first. Uh, What do you want to discuss first? Um, I wanted to do just, I know people are probably fucking sick of hearing about this, and I'm kind of sick talking about it, but I, I felt like I owed everybody a final Sekiro Shadows Die Twice final wrap-up. I swear this will be the last time I talked about it. I'm pretty sure, like, the first time you talked about it, I know, you, were like, I know. you were like, I don't think I'm going to play it anymore, I and then you, this is the third time you brought it to the show now. No, this, I swear to you, the final time, <laughs> the final time. Um, I don't remember where I left off, but basically what happened was I kind of rage quit the game for a while. Um, I talked to some folks I came back to it. And interestingly, um, as I've mentioned before, the beginning of that game, the first like maybe eight or 10 hours is pretty awful. Um, they really rake you over the coals and put you through it. And it's just, it's, you can kind of see how it would be fun, but it's kind of not fun because they start you out so underpowered. It's just really painful to get through. But anyway, once you get past that part, and you might need some help. I needed some help. I had a lot of people giving me some advice. I had Mike Susky helping me. I had some uh, other folks online giving me some help. Uh, so that was great. I appreciate everybody giving me the support. Everybody was, like, cheering on me to get through it. So I, I came back after my week of rage quitting, and I just was like, okay, I'm just going to, like, I'm not going to rush. going to take as much time as I need. If there's some, like, level-up items I can get or if there's some kind of weapon I can get, I will take the time to go do that. I'm not going to try to just push myself forward. 
Um, so I did, and it's really interesting because the middle section of that game is actually pretty great. Like, once you get over the hump of that initial difficulty and you can survive a little bit, like, it just becomes a pretty cool action game. Like, there's a lot of cool bosses that don't take you too long to get through. There's a lot of really cool areas to explore, a lot of, like, really neat um, environments, um, interesting situations, and it just becomes really fun when the game is not fucking killing you every five seconds. Like, when you finally... <laughs> get to play and you're not scared of like losing your progress or getting knocked back to your save point every five seconds it, it, it is actually pretty cool like it's pretty good i like what they were going for and I, I get what they were going for um so i pushed on through like the big i don't like the middle like the middle 75 percent of the game like you know there's a little bit at the beginning that sucked the middle the big middle chunk the majority of this game i think is actually pretty good and then I got to the very end of the game, and then people had warned me about it because they said the final boss was a real, real pisser. So I knew it was coming, and they were not wrong. <laughs> um, so basically, I did everything in the game that, that was possible to do. I mean, there's probably a couple little super secret things that I didn't track down, but, like, all of the mainline stuff. I got a couple of the extra things. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything here, so don't worry, folks. But I did, I did most of the game, like, almost all of the game. Uh, and then I finally got around to getting to the last boss. And I hate, I really hate to say it, but it was the kind of experience where I just quit. Like, I quit literally at the last boss of the game, and I just didn't want to play it anymore. And I'll tell you why. Um, so, after seeing what this game offers, I'm going to say that there's probably, maybe, th there's like three bosses in the game that I think are terrible. And they're basically terrible for a couple of reasons. The first couple are probably terrible because you're not strong enough to fight them when you might get there. I know that the game is kind of like an open world-ish sort of a thing. Not really, but kind of. And so it's possible to like do things in different orders and there's no real linear path. And so it's very likely that when you get to one of these bosses, you're not equipped to fight them. Um, so I think two of the bosses are, are terrible because you're just not really equipped to get there. But the thing that they all have in common is that for some reason... From puts cutscenes right before these bosses, and you can skip them, but the game still has to like load the cutscene. And even before you get to the cutscene, the game like loads you getting to that battle. And so with the toughest battles, it was always the same thing. You would get to this really hard battle, like one of the two or three that I think are really the standout um, ball busters. There'd be like a loading to get there. Then there would be a loading for the cutscene. Then you'd have to skip the cutscene. And then you, you could fight, but then if you died, you'd have to like go back through the load and then go back through the loading of the cutscene and then skip the cutscene and then fight him again. And it just really got under my skin the first couple of times because you get in the zone, like you're 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 on point, you're you know, your your adrenaline's going, you're you're really trying to like do your best, you're gonna try to put out your maximum effort. And if you lose, and then it's like, okay, I gotta sit here for like forty five seconds and do nothing. And like you start to lose the momentum, you know, like you get hot and then you gotta cool down, then you get hot, then you cool down. And it's just, it's really like a shitty way to play that game. I really wish that they had taken a cue from basically any other game recently where if you die, they just put you back in it. Like, you know, just real quick, like real fast. Like, don't let the player hang on too long because that's when the frustration builds, you know? Any, you know, like uh, like Celeste or like Super Meat Boy or any of those games that are actually extremely difficult games, if you can get the player back in, the frustration is greatly reduced because they just, they're still trying again. You just try and try and try. And I feel like for these bosses, that's where you need to be. Like, you, they're hard. Definitely hard. Really hard. But if I could have tried and tried and tried and tried without too much downtime, I think it would have been fine. And I got through everything. But when I got to that last boss, it just got to be a lot. Because then it was like, okay, so load the level. Load the cutscene. Skip the cutscene. 
fight one boss, and he's not a pushover, so you got to get through that guy. If you kill that guy, then you watch another cutscene that you have to skip, and if you get past that, there's another boss that you have to kill. Basically, he's got three phases, and if you die at any point, it sends you all the way back to square one. So that's a f basically a four-phase boss fight with two cutscenes that have to be skipped and a loading screen to get back to the start of the fight. So... I just wanted to practice this fight and I just wanted to throw myself in and just get in there and just do it and just do it until I could do it. But there was so much pausing and so much like going back to reload and going back and skipping the cutscene. It drove me fucking crazy. Like I could feel <laughs> the minutes of my life ticking away as I was sitting in front of the TV, like waiting for, for me to get back into the battle. And I just, I just seriously like lost patience with it. Like, I think that's a bad battle. The final boss I think is very poorly designed I think asking a person to get through four phases without a checkpoint is a big ask. And I know but people have done it. Please don't at me. Please don't email me. I know people have done it because everybody posts a fucking screenshot when they do it and they whoop and holler and they celebrate. <laughs> and good for you. Like, good for you. That's a really hard boss. I mean, if you got through that, more power to you and I celebrate you and I, I give you a big thumbs up. You can't see it, but I'm doing it right now. But, like, it's a big ask for, I think, most people to just do a four-phase boss fight and then to have all the downtime on top of it. It just, it just really just ground my gears, and I just, I just didn't want to get through it anymore. I didn't want to put more time into it. I didn't want to waste time. So I'm like, fuck it. Fuck it. I saw 99% of this game. I didn't finish the boss. Whatever. Stood up, deleted it from my PS4. I'm like, I'm done. Delete the fucking game. It's gone. I YouTube the endings, because if I didn't see the ending, I would still feel tempted to play it. But if I've seen the ending, then I will no longer have any temptation to play. All of the endings, I think, fucking suck. So I'm glad I didn't like punish myself to get through that. Glad I didn't waste any more time. Um, so that is my final wrap-up. I did not finish Sekiro. I got all the way to the last boss and then quit because I was too frustrated. But overall, I think that what FromSoft was trying to do was pretty cool. I'm glad they got away from Dark Souls. I'm glad they tried something different. I think that in general, it's a pretty cool game that's on the right track. Not perfect. Um, I'm thinking about writing a second opinion that critiques some of the aspects of it that I think need some work. But overall, I mean, I think it's more a win than a loss. I just wish that they weren't so eager to have these little like these little dick measuring contests pop up in the middle of the game like these two or three bosses that i feel like just go too far if it wasn't for those two or three bosses i think i would be way more comfortable recommending this to basically anybody who enjoys a souls ish kind of experience but those bosses are just a little on the much side so anyway the game is deleted i've moved on i'm i've put it in my past i will probably never come back to it unless they put in a a patch to give you like a checkpoint or something i might come back for that but otherwise we are done well uh like every time like last time you talked about this i told you that every time you talk about it i either think it sounds really good or, <clears throat> or i think it sounds really bad and the last time you talked about it i thought it sounded pretty bad and this time when you talk about it i think it sounds even worse so <laughs> i <laughs> Like, I, I'll probably leave it on my Gamefly queue just in case, but, man, this game, I just know, I know deep in my heart that this game is not for me, and even if there is some fun stuff in the middle of it, even if I can get past that first, like, six to eight hours that is difficult, I mean, that in and of itself is asking a lot for me, because um, I'm the kind of person where, you know, I'll play a game for, like, maybe an hour, maybe two hours, and then if it's not good, then I pretty much drop it right then and there, Um so, you know, the idea of playing it for up to, like, six or eight hours to get to, like, the good, like, middle stuff. Um, yeah, I just don't know if that's going to be my bag. But I'm glad that you knew when to say when, even if 
it was like I, did, I didn't know when to say when. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, dude, and uh, and you know, people gave me shit about it, which is fine. I mean, I know people were like, oh yeah, you should have just you know, finished it, and, you know, like man up and all that stuff. Like whatever, dude. I I am old enough now that I know when my limit has been hit, and I don't want to like waste any more of my lifespan on a game. But it is, it's a shame because I think this is a great game, and if they didn't have so many big asks of people i think it would be great like i don't think you should have to suffer through the first six or eight hours to get to the good good part i don't think you should have to fight a boss for like six hours or eight hours before you can get past it like those things are are too much they are capital t capital m too much (laughs) and it's a shame because i think there's a lot of good in this game but there's also a couple things that are just really bitter pills to swallow and i don't blame anybody for bouncing off of this but uh anyway Enough of Sekiro. I'm done with it. I guarantee you I will not bring it up again um, unless some kind of miracle happens, but I'm basically done with it. So let's let's turn things over to you, Corey Motley. Um, you had me really confused because I'm looking at the script. I know you're a photographer, <laughs> and on the script it says photographs, and I'm like, what are we talking about? I don't understand. Is this... You got to talk about the photos you just took, but that doesn't make sense because we talked about that banter. Why is what is going on? Why is the word photographs in our script? What is happening? Um, I promise I'm not talking about some new photo editing app on the iPhone. I promise. Um, I'm actually going to talk about a game. It is literally called Photographs, and it's on iOS. And a friend of mine from I was going to say home, but it's not really home for my college town, Jason. Uh, he recommended this to me, um, said, texted me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, I'm playing this game. I think you'll like it. And it's basically like, it's kind of like a narrative kind of puzzle game on, I think it's on, I know it's on iOS because I'm playing it on my phone. I'm pretty sure it's on like Android phones too, because I think he has a Google phone and he's been playing it on it. Um, I asked him whenever he recommended it to me, like, hey, it seems a little puzzle heavy. I'm not sure if this will be my bag. And he said, you know, I think it'll be fine, you know, just give it a shot. And the the setup of the game is, or at least so far that I've played, is it tells different, like, segmented stories. Like, I think there's five chapters. I might be wrong about that. And each chapter is kind of like its own self-contained story. And at the first chapter is, like, a guy... It's, uh, first of all, it's very, like, kind of pixel-based, kind of... Um, pared down graphics but it's very charming looking it's colorful it looks really nice and um, whenever you start the game it's kind of like you're looking at someone's house but it's kind of like if it's been like cut in half and you can kind of like see every floor of the house like from a side view yes yeah from a side view and okay and you can see like the sky and the grass and the trees behind it but the house like takes up most of the screen and the first chapter is about a guy whose, like, wife is sick. He's kind of like a farmer guy, and they have a shop in the ground level of their house. It's kind of like a medicine shop because he's, like, a pharmacist or something, and it looks kind of old school. Like, he's, you know, got a beard. It seems to have taken place, like, a long time ago. And it's not, like, you know, photorealistic or anything. But, um, and he, um, his wife gets sick. And so part of the game is whenever you're looking at the side view of the house, you press your finger on the screen and it kind of like zooms in like a camera, like a viewfinder, and there'll be a little clue underneath it. It'll say like, um, you know, like where we look at the stars or something. And so you have to look around the house to figure out where that thing might be. And like in that instance, there's like a telescope up in the attic that's looking out the window. So you like move your finger up to the telescope and then you you hold down on the telescope for a minute and there's like a circle that fills up inside the viewfinder and then it takes you to 
this puzzle sequence where it's kind of hard, maybe hard to explain. It's like a grid. So it's maybe like a five by five grid. And you have like a silhouette of both the man's head and the wife's head. And whenever you swipe your finger, they both, like both their heads go in that direction, but like all the way in that direction. So if like he starts in grid A1 and she starts in grid B1 and you swipe right, they both move to A5 and B5. And there's like a black silhouette for each of them on the grid and you have to get their like faces into those silhouettes by like swiping them around and at first it's pretty easy because like their silhouettes might be directly across the grid from them you swipe over and it's kind of like a tutorial and they're they just fit into their silhouettes and then it gives you like a story segment it's kind of like a little subtitled cutscene where it talks about like her being sick and him trying to take care of her um, and it kind of plays out this story, but it goes back and forth between that, between like looking around the house to find something and then doing a, a grid like puzzle segment. And the grid segments are kind of like, that's where like the challenge in the game is uh, because at first it starts off really easy. Maybe you can do it in like two or three moves and then it progressively gets harder. And it also, they throw more obstacles in the longer you play it. Like there might be um gates where you it stops the character or there might be like little like mud patches because the the grid looks like grass like like real grass and there might be like a mud patch and if you like swipe right the person will get stuck on that patch until you swipe right again and then they move over after that um and so it just like kind of progressively gets more difficult in this in this grid area and my suspicions were confirmed because it's just a little too hard for me. Um, I probably made it about five, maybe like grid puzzles into the first chapter. And I just got to one that I couldn't really figure out. There's like a couple, there's like a couple mud patches. There's a couple of gates. There's also these like weed things where if you swipe your character over like this root, then it blossoms into kind of like a tree and it fills up that square on the grid and then you can no longer go past it. It stops you. And so there's kind of like a one, you know, if you move over some blocks like that, then it kind of blacks out in a way where it becomes like a barrier then. And the cool thing that I like about it is that for every move you make, there's like a dot that appears above the grid on the screen and you can basically rewind at any point any move you've made. So it's not like an all or nothing thing. So if you if you get to a point where you can't figure out how to get the faces into the silhouettes, you know, you can move back one move, you can reverse three moves, you can reverse all the way to the beginning if you want, which is a pretty cool thing because a lot of puzzle games it's like if you mess it up, then you are fucked and you just kind of have to retry or reload the checkpoint or whatever. So I do like that. But this uh, this kind of like back and forth idea of like looking around the house with a camera and then doing a grid based puzzle really isn't enough for me. But I think that this would be good for people who like those kind of experiences, like a little sort of grid based puzzle with like kind of some interesting narrative thrown in. Because I don't know what the other chapters consist of, but every chapter is its own self contained story. Apparently, they're supposed to be like pretty mature and pretty interesting. Um, but unfortunately for me, like I, it was like exactly what I expected. So um, I hope Jason is not listening to this episode, but shame on you, Jason, for thinking that these puzzles would be 
easy for me. I'm just kidding. Um, because you, it's probably just me being dumb and like the puzzles not being that hard, but this is just the kind of like obtuse, like grid type puzzle that I just have a hard time wrapping my head around. And even like right before we started recording, cause I haven't played this game in probably like two weeks. And right before we started recording, I opened it on my phone again and I was like, eh, let me just take another look at it. Like maybe I was just tired in the moment. Maybe I couldn't figure it out or something. And sure enough, I couldn't figure it out again, like 30 minutes ago when I tried to play it. So it's just not for me. I think it's probably a good game if you like this kind of thing, but it's just a little too difficult for me. And it just kind of challenges me in a way that I'm not, that isn't really appealing or interesting to me. I'm looking up on my phone right now. Let me clarify with you. Is this the one that's called Photographs Puzzle Stories? And this is by 88 Games, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's it. Okay. 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 I have played some of the other offerings from 88 games. Um, not this one, but I've played, um, I think it's called like 1 billion or 1 million or something like that. I think I played You Must Build a Boat. So I think these guys are pretty legit developers. Um, I know that this is not your thing. I'm not sure that it would be my thing either, but you've kind of got my curiosity up because these are one of the very few people who, in my mind, actually make real games on phone, and there's that's a pretty small group. Uh, there's a <laughs> lot of shit on the phone, as I'm sure everyone knows. Um, so I don't know that this is a thing, and I'm not, like, super sold on it, but I, I may check it out because every once in a while I want something else to play on the phone, and I've just been downloading and deleting like crazy lately. have not found very much <laughs> of quality at all. So I, I may give this a shot. How much is it as you're looking at it? Um, on the Android store, it is $3.99, which is not unreasonable. Okay, I think that's how much it was on iOS, too. The weird thing about iOS is you once you buy it, you can no longer look at the price of it at the exactly, store, yeah. <laughs> which is weird. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, and that's one of the reasons why I bought it, too, because I was like, oh, it's only, like, four mm -hmm. bucks. Like, that's not a big deal. Like, I can spend that on especially if it's a personal recommendation from somebody, then, um, you know, it definitely increases my likelihood of buying it. So it's pretty cheap. Um, like, if you're listening and this sounds interesting to you, it's, pro like I said, it's probably a good game if you're into this kind of, like, narrative slash grid puzzle thing but unfortunately it's just kind of not my cup of tea but i it's i don't think it's bad it's just not something that really appeals to me yeah yeah you never really know you never know but it looks interesting like the graphics are cute like you said and i'd be inclined to give these guys the benefit of the doubt so i may pop for it well i'm gonna i'm gonna stare at it on my phone a little bit longer before i decide <laughs> i don't know if that's gonna swing me either way but i'm gonna stare i haven't i have not pushed the finger yet so we'll see <laughs> Uh, all right, let me let me talk at you a little bit here, Corey. I have a couple of quick takes. Um, the first one is called 39 Days to Mars. Uh, this is a 2D pixelish. Oh, it may not be pixelish. No, it might be kind of like indie. You know, it's, it's got a very idiosyncratic art style, I think. Um, it's originally on PC. It's a cooperative it's intended to be played as a cooperative game uh these two guys are kind of like i don't know like old english dudes or something like when everybody was like you know exploring the world like the the rich white english explorers that's kind of a trope in movies and, and books and stuff like that uh they decide they're going to um go to mars and explore mars and see what wildlife is out there so they're kind of like it's like a real fantastical kind of like light-hearted you know kind of like the whole thing in movies where someone's like oh i'm gonna build a rocket ship and then they go and build one and then it like actually flies and then they go somewhere like you know that kind of a goofy story <laughs> um i know there's probably like an exact specific genre for that kind of a thing i don't know exactly what that genre would be but it's like the rich privileged white english explorer 
taking on the uncivilized rest of the world or something. It's got that kind of a flavor to it. Um, so I got uh, contacted by the publishers. Full disclosure, I got a code to check this out. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. This is a co-op game. It's on the Switch. I'm always looking for something to play with my son. I'm going to fire this up and maybe the two of us can go through it together. Um, and basically, like, you start the game. It's 2D, kind of the same uh, setup as photographs. Everything is, like, uh, seen side-on. So you're seeing, like, a cross-section of their house or you see a cross-section of the world and they kind of walk around, kind of like the ant farm view. And in the beginning, they're like, oh, it's like a lot of puzzles. A lot of puzzles interspersed with a lot of funny quotes and a lot of funny dialogue about these guys being so proper Englishmen that they can't explore Mars until they've had a proper scone and that sort of a thing. And that's kind of what you're working with. So I'm like, okay, this seems kind of goofy and fun. I'm, I'm, we're ready for this. But we didn't actually get too far, and I'll tell you why. Because it is the kind of co-op game where it requires a lot of coordination between two people. And it's not something that is made for people with a low stress tolerance, I don't think. I mean, of course, it depends depends on who you're playing with, of course. Uh, but these kind of games are not my son's jam. Um, I think they're probably more my jam than his. And we'd be doing, like, a puzzle. Like, so you'd be walking around, you'd hit a puzzle, the game changes, and you see, like, a close-up of the puzzle. Like, one puzzle is, like, there's an electric panel, and you connect the wires to the right slots, and if the slots are correct, then the, the light bulb lights up, and then you win the puzzle and you move on. Like, pretty simple. But the thing that makes it hard is one person controls one hand and the other person controls the other hand. And so you're like, oh, okay, we'll grab that wire. No, not that wire. No, over here. Okay, so bring it up. And then, no, no, too far, too far. Go back, go back, go back. No, not that one, the other one. And you're kind of doing that the whole time. So if both people are not super, like, chill and, like, ready to put up with that, it gets to be really aggravating for everybody involved, like, in a real short period of time. So we got through the first, like, three or four puzzles and then he's like, fuck this game. I hate this game. This game sucks. It's the worst game I've ever played. I'm not playing this game anymore. And I'm like, it's not that bad, dude. Come on. It's not that bad. This is not the worst game we've ever played. I get that this is not usually your jam. I know this is a little bit frustrating, but we can power. He's like, no, fuck this game. I hate this game. Fuck it. I believe it. I'm like, okay, we're going to call it. I'm going to use my parental, my parental decision-making skills and say, this is maybe not the right game for us. I'm going to put the gibosh on this. Um, so we stopped. We didn't get too far, but it looked really cute. And the good thing is that you can play it by yourself. You can just use both, you know, both controllers, both of the Joy-Cons on your own. So I will come back to it because I thought it was cute. It seemed kind of funny and amusing. And I think that if I am controlling both hands, it will be easier because then you know exactly which way you want to turn things and which way you want to go and what you're shooting for. And it doesn't require all that goofing around and one person going too far and one person not going far enough and one person hitting the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it's just... I realize that's part of the fun for some people, and I can understand how it could be fun, uh, but it was not fun for us. And I don't think I'm even a customer of that kind of fun in general. I would rather just do something that was, um, I don't know, just a little bit more effortless, where, where the struggle is not the fun, where you're actually doing something and not struggling to do it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, like, I'd rather be shooting zombies with my wife where we both are very comfortable with the interface rather than the two of us trying to figure out how to lift a box and each one of us is holding one hand and it's kind of you know like that that kind of struggle is not something i'm super down for but i will come back to it and i will give it another shot so 39 days to mars not a lot to say on it because we hit our frustration cap pretty quickly uh but i will uh come back and report once i put some more time into it um the other thing i want to give a quick shout out to is crimson keep 
Uh, originally on PC, it's on Switch. Also, I was playing 39 Days to Mars on Switch, in case I forgot to mention that. But Crimson Keep, uh, it's also on PS4. It's also on Xbox One. Uh, thank you for the notes, Corey. Uh, it's a very simple roguelike first-person adventure game where you are um, a pair of ghostly hands that float on screen and you just get dropped into a dungeon and you're supposed to kill everything that moves, pick up any weapons that you find along the way and just get as far as you can. Um, I mean, there's not really a lot to it. And it seems kind of like low budget and kind of janky. <laughs> um, but unlike 39 Days to Mars, my son loved Crimson Keep. He thought that was super fun. He really got into it, and he was having a great time with it. Um, I think probably because it's very straightforward, it's very action-based, and the interface is really easy to understand, so there's nothing... There's no struggle about it. I mean, you're killing guys, but you're not struggling with the interface or anything, which is good. Um, but the other thing that's really notable about this... I mean, it's like... I. I'm struggling to even describe it because it's literally first-person combat and you're in a dungeon, and that's kind of all that happens. <laughs> also, a roguelike, so if you die, you go back to the start. But the thing that I found really noteworthy about this game is how much man-meat is on display. I was really taken aback um, by how much, like, beefcake is going on here. Or I guess fat cake, I guess, would be kind of a better <laughs> way to describe it. Uh, a lot of the monsters are basically, like, naked, big, fat, naked dudes with, like, monster heads. <laughs> oh, my God. And when my wife came through the room, she's like, what the fuck is he playing? And I'm like, oh. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. It looks, I know what this looks like, but it's not what it looks like. It's just a dungeon. That's just a demon. It's no big deal. It's not, a, it's not what it looks like. And so, I mean, the butts in this game are real meaty. They're real meaty and juicy. And like, when you kill some of these guys, like they have crotches and there's no genitals or anything, but they've got some pretty severe taint bump going on. And it's just like, it is... It is a lot to take in, and I kind of was questioning whether he should even be playing it. Uh, but he didn't care too much, and I'm like, after the first five minutes, I kind of stopped noticing it that much. But if you want a bunch of, like, naked man bodies with monster heads, like, if that's your thing, you might want to check into Crimson Keep, because they have it in spades. There is a lot of that going on. And it's also a first-person action roguelike, so you can play it for that reason, too. So um, I, I didn't play it myself. I just watched over his shoulder as he was playing it. But he really liked it a lot. He really liked just the gameplay of it. He thought it was really fun. So I bet you can probably enjoy it on a couple of levels there. So shout-out to Crimson Keep and its meaty butts and taint bumps. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you have said in the past... I know you just said you didn't play this, but you said in the past that whenever it comes to... Because you're no stranger to you know, sort of dungeon-crawling roguelike or roguelite situations. But you said in the past that you do not like first-person roguelikes. Is that correct? You prefer, like, top-down or third-person? Yeah, I really don't like... Um, really don't like first-person roguelikes because I find that they... I mean, I just... I'm not a fan of first-person in general. And it's just me as a person. Not my favorite perspective. My son is much more a fan of first-person than I am. Um, I think he likes to role-play a lot more than I do, and I'm more about, like, tactical and kind of, like, weighing my options kind of at a distance. And so... That's just how our personalities roll. But yeah, I I mean, I would play it. I mean, I'll try it. But like, I'm just not a fan of first-person combat of this kind in general. Okay. Is that the reason why you didn't play it? Or was it just your son got to it first? I think he got to it first. I think I probably will play it at some point. But I mean, honestly, like I watched him and I, I kind of was like, okay, I think I've seen all I need to see. <laughs> but I may fire it up a little bit later. I don't want to dismiss the game out of hand. I'm not dismissing it. I, it looks, you know, fun on a certain level. So I may get to it. Um, but I just was going to let him have his, uh, his fun with it. And when he's done, I'll probably take it over. So we'll see. So anyway, let's move, let's move, uh, let's clean the show back up. Let's, I felt we went into the gutter for a minute there. Let's get out of the gutter. Uh, let's talk about the division two. We were probably going to talk about this in drips and drabs for the rest of 
our lives. Like, <laughs> lifetime, or our lifetimes, yeah, basically. Um, I just talked for a bunch. Why don't you lead off, Corey? Why don't you fill people in on where we're at in the division and what's been going on? Okay, so Brad and I and Brad's wife, we have been playing the division together, as I'm sure everybody knows, because we talk about it like every second or third episode. Um, we've been doing the whole campaign together uh, in co-op because that is the only fun way to play the game is in co-op. Um, and w- something that I love that we've been doing is Brad and Gina have played a little bit on their own, and they've just done like a little bit of side mission stuff on their own, but everybody waits until the three of us are together to do the main story missions. And the main story missions, as we've said before, are actually like pretty great. Like they tend to have some pretty excellent level design. I mean, we touched on this the last time we talked about it. They can be frustrating, but they're not too frustrating. Um, And so we played it again about a week ago or so, and we decided that we would try the next story mission in the game because the story mission kind of, it doesn't have a level cap, but it kind of has like a, what would you say, Brad? Like they recommend what level you should do to play it? Definitely recommended levels, yeah, for sure. And we were we're kind of all well. Brad and Gina are pretty close in levels. Uh, what what are you guys like level like twenty five or something? Do you know where you are? Yeah, we're about twenty five, twenty six, something like that. Yeah, and because they've been playing a little bit extra than I have, because I pretty much only play it whenever the three of us get together, and so I'm like a fair bit lower than they are. Like I'm level like I don't know, like eighteen or seventeen or something. So I'm a little bit um, like stunted compared to them. Which kind of, oddly enough, comes in handy for me. I haven't told you this, Brad, while we've been playing, but something that I think I've noticed is that because you guys are higher level, you sort of, like, naturally, like, aggro the enemies toward you, I think, because they see you as more of a threat, which is funny for me because I'm generally, like, the aggro guy who's like, okay, let me get my shotgun out and just, like, rush in like an idiot. But it kind of saves me because, like, the enemies, it seems like no matter, there are certain situations I've noticed where, like, if you guys are paired up and I'm sort of, like, off flanking, that, like, no matter how many times I shoot these enemies, they, like, pretty much stay focused on you guys, which is kind of nice for me. Um, I haven't said that before, but that's something I noticed the last couple times we played. Um, But we have, we decided to try a story mission that I think had, like, a level 26 a recommended level and at the time I think you guys were like 24 or something and I was like 16 so I was pretty far down and we were just like oh whatever like let's throw caution to the wind and try it because the worst thing that could happen is we all die and spoiler alert we all died a lot in this mission <laughs> we um uh, all three of us died all the time but something that we kind of forgot that we had to get back under um I guess like our belt in the division is that Whenever you're playing a story mission in co-op in the division, if all because like there, whenever you get down, like you, whenever you lose all your health, you kind of go down, and then an enemy or one of your partners has to come over and revive you. And if you don't get revived in time, or if you keep getting shot at while you're downed, you can be like dead. Well, I want to say permanently, but really it's not permanently. Like you can actually die, die. However, you can still be revived. It just takes like three times as long to be revived if you like die all the way and if all three care or however many people you're playing with if all if that amount of characters if they all get downed then you basically just have to wait until everybody bleeds out or you can manually restart from a checkpoint if everybody dies dies then the game just checkpoints you back to wherever you are but something that we kind of forgot that we had to put into play in the last story mission we did was we used this tactic in the first division where if you split up or if somebody, like, hangs back or stays in a safe place, 
Um, as long as one person is still alive, even if the other two people are down or even if the other pe two people die, as long as you give them time to respawn and reload back into the game, which is not an insignificant amount of time, it takes like 30 seconds for them to be able to respawn or something like that, um, you won't have to checkpoint. So as long as one person stays alive, um, you can still, everybody can still checkpoint back in. However, if all three of you die, then you basically all have to, you know, reload your game and go back to where the last checkpoint was. And boy, did we use that at the end of the last mission we did. I'm going to try not to spoil this too much because it's like midway through the game. But there was a segment where we were kind of, the three of us were in kind of like a chemical bunker area um, kind of old, kind of dusty. The room was pretty small, and there was, like, a control panel. And, I I mean, part of me loves it, part of me hates it. The fact that in this room, there's really not that much cover. And The Division is very much a cover shooter. Like, it's not the kind of game where you can just run and gun, because you'll basically be downed in, like, five seconds if you run and gun. Um, there is a segment where... We were all trying to take cover behind this control panel, and there were enemies across the room that were kind of crawling and running out of these, like, caves, and they had to come out of this cave, climb down a ladder, and then they would be on the battlefield with us. And if we were lucky, we could shoot them and kill them before they even made it down the ladder. But to make matters worse, the game has unleashed these, like, suicide bombers on us, so they will basically just get to the battlefield and then run toward you. And if they make it in contact with you, they blow themselves up. And usually that's enough to down you. Or if not, it's like a couple of health points away from downing you. So if you're like in the middle of fighting people, a suicide bomber rushes you and blows up next to you, you're basically fucked, like more often than not. However, if you kill the suicide bombers, you can make them blow up, which can in turn damage other enemies so it's kind of like a good rippling rippling effect but it's kind of hard to kill them because they run really fast and they're pretty erratic so we tried this segment probably like five or six times and it's not an insignificant amount of time where to you know to get through everything where the checkpoint is and at the very end of the segment there's a boss that comes through the chemical bunker room and something that i do not remember from the first division so correct me if i'm wrong brad but in the Division 2, there are enemies and there are boss enemies that basically only wield melee weapons. Do you remember that in the first one, or is that new for the second one? I'm pretty sure that's new. Uh, this guy, he had, like, I think he had a sledgehammer. We also saw somebody who had, like, a chainsaw. And, like, <laughs> both of those are nuts. Uh, but, no, I don't remember that in the first Division. I think that's definitely new. Okay, I thought so, too. I just wanted to make sure. So, yeah, so earlier in the level, we had encountered this, like, giant boss dude who had a chainsaw. And, I mean, it's pretty much like, oh, one minute you're playing The Division, and then the next minute you're, like, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the video game. Because it's pretty fucking scary. Like, they rush at you, and they have a chainsaw, and it's, like, hard to dodge them. And sometimes, even if you like think you dodge them the game still kind of counts the boss as hitting you like if you're in you know if they're w within your like hitbox area which is kind of unfortunate but i guess it's just the way the game is so we got to this to the section keep in mind we have to shoot like probably like 50 enemies before the boss even comes out and then when the boss comes out the boss with the sledgehammer there are still like a handful of enemies that flood in if there weren't enemies that flooded in it would have been a lot easier um but the bosses in the game take, like, 
Jesus, like 200 bullets to kill. Like they're not insignificant enemies. Oh, more than more than that, dude. <laughs> Way more than that. That is they're because they're, they're covered head to toe in armor. And if yeah. I guess. I guess depending on how you're specced, maybe you can strip the armor off quicker, but, like, it's way more than 200 shots. I mean, I don't know what their life bar is like, but it's, like, I felt like we were shooting that fucker for, like, an hour. <laughs> like, it just took a while. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's pretty, like, honestly pretty absurd how many bullets they can take. And there was a point where we had gotten to the boss and I think died, like, three times and... You know, we would get to him, and then we would try to, you know, dodge or run away from him. And basically, like, pretty much, like, one hit from his sledgehammer would be just about enough to down you. And then there's also, like, a few other enemies uh, shooting at you from the sidelines. And there was a point where we remembered about this respawn tactic where as long as one person stays alive, the other two people can spawn in. Because what kept happening is we would spend, like, 15 minutes doing the battle, and then we would get to the boss, and then he would kill us, and then we would have to respawn do the 15-minute battle again. Sometimes we didn't even make it back to the boss. Sometimes we would die in those 15 minutes. Then we would all have to respawn. And probably about the third or fourth time we got to the boss, um, I remember Gina saying, because we were thinking about giving up, and she was like, no, this is it. This is the one. We, we have to try it one more time. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it. So the boss came back out, and we started to employ our respawn tactic. And there were two separate times during the boss fight where Brad and Gina, who were both... 10 levels or so ahead of me they both died no shade to either of you but they both like got, got downed completely um and all i had to do was run my ass off around the arena this small bunker arena that we very were in small bunker, very small <laughs> and try to get away from this frantic giant scary armored boss that was swinging his sledgehammer at me like crazy well, there's also, like, one or two enemies that are still alive trying to shoot at me. And somehow, somehow, we did it. But it required... A, I was basically, like, running a marathon every time they got downed. And as long as I was able to stay alive long enough for them, for them to respawn in, we all wouldn't have to checkpoint back. And luckily... Somehow we did it, but it was basically just me. I couldn't even attack him because there was he was chasing me so quickly and right on my heels that I didn't have time to turn around and shoot him because if I did, he would have just hit me with a sledgehammer and it would have been game over right then and there. So all I could do was just run my ass off around this arena to try to get around his sledgehammer, his sledgehammer um, you know, swings and try to like vault over stuff to throw him off or turn corners quickly to get rid of him. And it was probably the most intense experience we've had so far i mean probably throughout both divisions i mean save for some dark zone stuff that we did in the division one it's probably the most intense like campaign related thing that's happened to us throughout both divisions and it was definitely trying and it was definitely hard but we enjoyed our well-deserved victory after that situation was over with that was pretty crazy. That is definitely, I, th I think that is definitely the most intense story mission we've ever done in either division. Because, like, that guy was so tough. Like, I mean, and the room is so small, and there's so many other enemies in there. And even with the three of us, like, it's just like we were just constantly getting hit, and he was doing so much damage um, that we were just going, you know, just getting knocked down so quick. And I remember getting knocked down, and I could still, I could still move my camera around a little bit because I wasn't all the way dead. And I'm like, oh, my God, Corey, just keep running. Just run. I'm like, he's right behind you, Corey. Run. Just run. Don't stop running. Don't, don't turn around. Just run. 
And then like I'm like jamming on the circle button to get like you know respawn back in the game. I'm like just five more seconds, five more, se- four more seconds. Don't die in the next three <laughs> seconds. Stay alive for three seconds. You know, like and it was pretty fucking intense. And then I would you know get killed. And then like you know I guess they would aggro after Gina. And she would get killed. And then we're like, oh my god, one more time. Just keep running. Just keep running. And it was just like it was super super stressful because I mean that's a really hard battle. And I I don't know whether we were under leveled or what, but. It was just really tough, and like at that point, I was getting pretty frustrated with it because we had lost probably at least four or five times before the one where we finally won it. And I'm like, oh my god, you guys, maybe we should just go back and level up a little bit or something. Uh, but you and you and Gina, neither one of you guys gave up. I think I was the one that was going to give up on that, but we <laughs> did pull through uh, thanks to your heroic efforts. I mean, it was I mean so stressful. If any of those guys had tagged you when you were running around, it would have been over. And you just managed to somehow pull it. I don't know how you did it. I mean, but you pulled it off and it was just like fucking amazing. So that's probably the most exciting victory we've had in the division so far, I think. Yeah, I don't know how I did it either, but somehow I was able to just run around like crazy and we did it. And I am very much, I am looking forward to, but also terrified about the next time we play together. I I think we need to just level up for a while. We're going to just do some side stuff. We're going to do some low impact stuff. It might be boring, but I think we're all going to be five levels higher than when we started it, and I think we'll be in better shape for next time. I think so. All right, all right. Uh, one more game to talk about, and then we shall wrap it up. Um, I want to give a big shout-out, and it has to be a big shout-out because I know that no one is giving this game the time of day. No one is giving a shit about this game. No one's looking at this game. This game is, like, totally cold and alone in the rain, living under a bridge. No one loves it. Uh, it's called Dark Quest 2. Super generic title. Totally admit uh, that is a bad, bad title. Uh, originally released on PC in 2016. I believe the first game came out on Xbox Live Arcade and might have also been PC. And as far as I know, it's a single person who is developing. Uh, according to your awesome notes, Corey, he says... Developer and publisher is Brian Seal. Um, I don't know that person, but that does match up with what I heard because when people were telling me about the first game, the original Dark Quest, they were saying it was also kind of a one-man show. So that's very possible. I'm playing it on Switch. And full disclosure, I was sent a code for review for this. uh, So I will be writing a full review. Uh, But I want to just take a minute to talk to y'all. Gather around. We're going to talk about this cool little fun game that no one is buying and no one is... Like, I went to Metacritic zero reviews zero reviews on any platform how often does that happen man not that does not happen every day so you know this game needs a little bit more love uh what this game is once you just admit the fact that the art looks generic and the name is generic and you really want to skip it like every fiber of your being is telling you to skip it and move on to something else don't skip it this is actually a fucking dope game um it's a top down kind of isometric grid based it's kind of like an RPG, but it's basically like a board game. If you've ever played a board game, kind of like the little the little fantasy games that use miniatures. I mean, for me, the closest analog was HeroQuest, uh, but that's a board game from a while ago. I think only old dudes remember HeroQuest, uh, but that was very, very popular back in the day, where it's kind of like Dungeons & Dragons, but with a very simplified rule set, and you had these little dungeons that were just made up of a bunch of squares, and there would be like, you know, a door here and a monster there, and it was all very simple but i don't mean that as an insult i mean it as as a term of endearment i mean i think there's something to be admired about a game that doesn't need a thousand bells and whistles to be fun like if the combat itself is fun the systems are fun um it just just comes off like a very simple straightforward but very well put together board game 
So what you do is you have a very small hub where it's just got like um, a couple characters to recruit. There's like a couple different shops where you pick up like a potion or you like level up your guy a little bit. It's all very basic, very basic, very, it's, it's not like a full on RPG. You're not talking to citizens or villagers or anything like that. Uh, there's no side quests or any weird grinding or anything. Um, just a little hub where you can do a little business and then you just jump into a quest. And these are handcrafted quests. They're not randomly generated. And there is uh, just basically a bunch of dungeons you got to get through. And there's an evil wizard at the end of it. Um, story is not really the draw to this game. It's just the systems. So there are, I don't know how many characters. There's a barbarian. There's a knight. There's a monk. There's a wizard. There's an archer. And there is a dwarf. Those are the classes. You can pick whichever one you want from the start. And uh, you're making a mistake if you don't go with barbarian. <laughs> uh, so pick the barbarian first and then build your party up afterwards. And all of them, except for the dwarf, which to me kind of seems useless, but maybe I'm just not using him correctly. But everybody has their own kind of like angle on things and they all have interesting powers. So you pick a party uh, and each dungeon will tell you you can choose. Oh, you can choose one person for this dungeon or you can choose two or three. And the game will tell you how many you can bring. And so you bring as many as you can bring and you go into these dungeons and the whole dungeon is broken up into little squares and you know, like you can move like six squares and enemies can move, you know, whatever squares. And it, that's basically all it is. Like you just go in and it's just very simple turn based. I mean, I, it's kind of like tactics, but not exactly like tactics because I feel like it's a little bit simpler than tactics. But it's also like a board game because the rules are very straightforward. The abilities are very straightforward. And it feels very much like you're just moving pieces around on a board, which to me is totally fine. Like I enjoy board games and I enjoy electronic board games like this one. So... I just think that the systems work really well together. Uh, the Barbarian is just kind of like a damage dealer. You know, the Archer, of course, strikes people from a distance. The the Wizard can, like, has lots of, like, area of effect spells and stuff. And just kind of going through turn by turn and just carefully weighing your options and trying to just get through each dungeon. It's just really fun. I just think it's really, really well done because it's so simple. Like, it's so simple, not very much to manage. You can pick it up and put it down you know as much as you want you're not going to forget where you are because the story doesn't really matter and each dungeon is pretty small like i think maybe like 10 15 minutes at most probably even quicker than that once you start leveling up a little bit um and there's just not a lot to, it's like it's not a fat package like there's not a lot to it but everything that's there is good and everything that's there serves a purpose and it's all all the pieces just come together really well and i've had just like a blast going through it i do like one or two dungeons a night uh while i'm in bed it's not the kind of thing that I would want to like play for 12 hours in a stretch, uh, but doing one or two or three quests a night is just really, really fun. And uh, I mean, leveling up is pretty straightforward. You got to get a couple items in a dungeon. You get those items, you level up. It's just easy. Um, you can replay levels if you want to level up even more. And it's just, it's, it's just like somebody handed me a box of like a really cool board game with all the pieces inside of it. And I've just been playing with those and it's not huge. I mean, there's no DLC. There's no extended campaign. There's not all sorts of weird, you know, video gamey stuff. It feels very much like a very neat little fun board game that you would play with your friends in the afternoon. And I just, I just love every minute of it. I'm just having like the best time playing this game. I just really enjoy it so much. Um, so it's, it's well-designed. It's well-balanced. I think uh, all the art is hand-drawn, which gives it a very cool visual style. Um, you would expect this to be kind of pixel-based or indie, but it's, it's all hand-drawn and it's all got a really neat, neat style to it. Uh, I mean, I don't know what there else, what else there's to say because it's very straightforward, but if you remember HeroQuest or if you 
have played, you know, any of those like Dungeons and Dragons type games that use miniatures and little boards that are broken up into squares. It's very much like that and just really simple, but elegant and streamlined and good, simple in a good way. And I just, I'm just having a blast with it. I've just been loving every minute of this game. I, this is one of those games that you bring to the show and I know in my heart, it falls completely out of everything I would ever want to play. But I'm also incredibly excited that you found something that is good that you can bring to the show. And I have a feeling that people who are listening to the show might be excited about this because we have heard time and time again that we, you and I have somehow become like the indie game podcasters. Like people are always like, oh, we appreciate like the indie gems you bring to the show and the good stuff and the stuff we haven't heard about. So maybe this is one of those games for people. I mean, I... I implore you, if you're listening to this podcast, if if you like D and D or or board fantasy board games or even tactics games or strategy games, and you want something small and bite sized that's a perfect fit for the Switch, it looks great on the Switch. It's the perfect size for the Switch. Something that you can just play in little bits here and there. I mean, I just I love this game. It is so smartly designed and so like reasonable. Like it's just a reasonable game. Like it doesn't ask too much of you, but it, it's fun to play. And it's not hard to learn and there is challenge to it like you can die and if you die there's not much of a penalty so they they want you to keep playing um i mean it's just really it's just really a great game and if anybody out there is listening that is even remotely interested in this please pick it up it's only a couple bucks um basically no one is playing this no one's talking about it last time i checked metacritic there wasn't a single review on <laughs> any platform not even one review folks so, I mean, I didn't find this game on purpose. Like I said, the developer reached out and sent me a code, and that's great, because I, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, it looks so generic, I probably would have passed it up in the store, and that would have been a real shame, because I think this game is wonderful. Uh, so that is Dark Quest 2. I'm playing it on Switch. I think it's also on PC. Seems like it's also on Xbox One and PS4, according to your notes, Corey. Um, it's, I don't know how much it is, but, I mean, it's not much, and it's a pretty small thing, and apparently could be done by one particular guy, but... Regardless, I think this game is marvelous. It is lovely, and I am just, I'm almost at the end of it, and I'm going to be sad when it's over because I've been enjoying it so much. And I, you guys know, I almost never am sad when a game is over. I am almost, <laughs> I am almost thrilled when games are over so I can be done, but this one has been a gem. I wouldn't mind if this one was twice as long, honestly, because it has just been a joy to play. So, Dark Quest 2, check it out. Well, maybe in the future there will be a Dark Quest 3, and you can just continue your journey on that. I mean, maybe so, but this one has got me really tempted to go track down the first Dark Quest. I may have to dig my 360 out of whatever dusty box it's buried in and, like, <laughs> fire it up. And I don't know if you can even download it anymore. I don't even know. Actually, no, you can't because didn't they? That's right. They decommissioned all of the Xbox Live Indie shit, didn't they? They did last year, right? Did they? I, I think they did. I think they totally. I'm, I'm sure. I feel like we talked about it. I feel like they got rid of all the indie stuff. Oh, man. So I can't even download it. I'll have to track it down on PC or something. Anyway, that's how much I like this game, that I'm actually considering playing it on PC. And I never fucking say that, so <laughs> I'm digging this game. Anyway, Dark Quest 2, check it out. It's on Switch, a couple bucks. It is good shit. And that is all I got, Corey. That's all I got today. All right. Well, uh, are you ready to wrap up the show then? I think I'm ready. Even though this has been stretched out over two days and today's recording has been short, I bet that listeners are, are in for a real ride today. They got a lot of stuff to listen to. This is going to be a meaty show, so we should probably get this part wrapped up yes i agree so yes everybody that brings us to the end of episode 131 of the so video games podcast oh wait 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 wait, wait. Whoa, i forgot wait, wait, wait. i forgot what? forgot, forgot. What? 
we didn't have we did not have a single person write in and claim free games last week which i was surprised by folks all you got to do is say send me free games and i will send you free games <laughs> uh apparently nobody wants pc games uh so okay that's fine let's let's not offer pc games this week we'll put a moratorium on i mean unless you want some if you want pc games ask me i'll send you some uh but instead we got cleaned out of the ps4 but i've got a lot of xbox one games so let's make it xbox one this week if you want an xbox one game this week and you're listening this far in the show i'm gonna give you a motherfucking xbox one game (laughs) all you gotta do all you gotta do is email us and just say yo i listened to your show and i would like an xbox one game and I'll give it to you. That's all is involved. It's simple. Simple, simple. Couldn't be easier, man. So, like, if you want an Xbox One game, hit me up. I will send you. I promise you I will send you one. So, that's it. This week is Xbox One. Unless you want PC, you can ask for PC, too. But Xbox One this week. Hit us up, motherfuckers. <laughs> Brad has never been more offended in his life that people did not ask for video games last week. I can't give this shit away. I can't give these games away. I found, sound like a fucking used car salesman, dude. I'm going crazy. Low prices. I can't give the. I literally can't give a game away. What is going on? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. But if you want a game, uh, there is one definitive way to get a hold of us, and that is by emailing us for games. You can email us at sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also post, not to request games, but for other stuff. Uh, you can get in touch with us a few different ways. Um, on GameCritics.com, there is a comment section under every article that a podcast is in. So you can post comments there if you would like to. You can also get a hold of us on Twitter and Instagram. And Brad and I, our names carry over for both of them. Uh, Brad, what are your handles for those? On Twitter and Instagram, it's the same in uh, both both venues. It's B-R-A-D-G-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, all A's, no O's. Excellent. And uh, my handles are also uh, my first and last name for Twitter and for Instagram. It is Corey Motley, C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. Make sure to stick around for banter after the show if you want to, uh, Brad. And I have a pretty meaty banter section. It's like more than an hour. Um, Also, spoiler alert, I get pretty heated ranting about men's makeup at the very end of the banter section. (laughs) If you ever were curious about men's makeup, Corey drops all the knowledge. You will be an expert after listening to that rant. I guarantee it. Yes, I will take you to church and back talking about men's makeup and talking about skincare and acids you use on your face, all that stuff. But we also talk about some TV shows. I talk about my recent trip to Houston, Texas for Comic Palooza. So if you're interested in any of that, please stay tuned after the closing music and you can listen to our banter section. However, if you're just here for the games, uh, no harm, no foul. I don't blame you. Um, You can just cut out now and run and come back next week to hear our next game section. Um, But I just want to give another thank you to Doug Walsh for uh, Skyping in or discording in with us to chat about his book and for uh, hanging out so that we could talk to him about his book. I will have details about the book in the show notes, so there will be some extra details there in case you think it sounds interesting and want to pick it up. Um, But I think that's it. Brad, do you have anything else before we sign off? I think that's it. Uh, Just write in for your free Xbox One game and come back next week and we'll catch you then. Sounds like a plan. So without further ado, this is the end of episode 131, unless you're listening to the banter later. Uh, But that's it. We'll be back next week with episode 132. But until then, this is bye from Corey. 
and bye from Brad. See you then. Nice uh, third interview down in the books. Um, how do you think that went, Corey? Um, I think it went well. I uh, I don't know. It was good. Uh, nice to talk to somebody new, and uh, I actually genuinely enjoyed the book. I mean, I don't like. I wouldn't like lie about that. I guess. But um, the thing <laughs> I meant to say this to Doug, but the thing that I like about the book too is like that at a certain point in the book he says. In a chapter, he he says gamers of a certain age, and that really cracked me up because like this book is definitely um, like it's like meant for people who've kind of been around the block with games. Like if you're like twelve, this book is not going to be for you because you're not going to know anything he's talking about in it. But it was nice to sort of be a part of that like sort of like older gaming crowd because it's like a roadmap of games like from the Atari up until the PlayStation 4 and like a bunch of games that he touched on. It was stuff that I had played before and like whenever he, there's like a whole chapter on Enter the Matrix and I'm one of those weirdos that liked Enter the Matrix. So like hearing, yeah. So like hearing him talk about the game and like writing the review for, or not the review, but the guide for it. Um, it was just cool to kind of hear, to read through that and um I don't know. It's just, it's like a nice like roadmap and it's very nostalgic, but it's also got good information about like just like the inner workings of like that tiny industry that he worked in within games. It's interesting that you say that because I think that's very true. I mean, Doug and I are pretty close in age. I don't know if I'm older or if he's older. We're, we're about neck and neck and I am 43 right now. So, you know, been writing at Game Critics for a long time. And, you know, I started with the Atari 2600 so I've, you know, I've seen some shit and it's weird to see like how the generations are going and like what knowledge becomes common knowledge, what knowledge kind of goes away and how things are different and how attitudes change. I mean, it's like, it's such a brief period of time when compared to like the rest of history, it's just like a, a blip. But if you're within that blip, like to see things go from 2600 to like what we have today with PS4 and PC and VR and all this stuff is like an incredibly rapid shift and... I think we're still trying to catch up with like what that means and how to deal with it and what it, you know, as people like who partake in this medium, like how we even deal with something that changes and grows so fast. It kind of reminds me of um, like, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but my grandma grew up in a cabin that had no electricity and no running water. And she had a kerosene lamp for light. And here we are. I mean, I'm talking to you like nothing you're in new orleans i can we can facetime on the phone if we want to i can send an instant message to somebody in, in britain and we're like so connected i mean i can download the the information of the world on my phone in like you know point zero 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 three seven seconds courtesy of google and i mean <laughs> that's only like two generations dude like how you know how amazing is that and so that same kind of leap is i think also in video games but in a smaller scale so i think doug's perspective is interesting and i think um I guess I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see more. I don't want to call this book a memoir. I mean, it's kind of a memoir, but I mean, I, I wonder if we're going to start seeing books from people, uh, you know, who are kind of like, like myself kind of getting older and who have been through that. Like, are we going to look back and like write about that, like an experience or like, is it just going to be a random blog post somewhere? I, I guess I'm kind of curious if, of what knowledge is going to stick around once we start aging out of things, you know? 
Yeah, and it's kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, somebody's got to do it, and I'm glad that somebody is doing it, because I certainly wouldn't feel qualified to do anything like that. And the fact that Doug is writing it in, a like, a book book, and not, like, it's a physical book, but it's also an ebook, and it's not just, like, a single blog post somewhere. It makes it feel just, like, more official and more, like, I don't know, historian-y, if you will. Yeah, dude, I, I think there's a lot of upsides to, like, everything and downloading and mobile and blah 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 but like at the same time I think there's also equal value of a different kind for physical media and things that persist and things that are real um, I think we I mean I think both things are good and I don't think either one needs to eliminate the other um, but especially when it comes to things that are historical in nature or things that are kind of factual I think having a physical record is great because you just never know what's going to happen um, especially in these days where stuff disappears, stuff gets deleted, stuff gets changed. I mean, you can't even trust pictures or video anymore. I don't know if you've um, been keeping up, but there's been a lot of like, like, like fake technology is getting better where you can superimpose someone else's face on something. And then you can make a video that seems like, like this person is actually doing something, but they're really not. So, I mean, I think having some kind of permanent record, even as basic as just like text on a page is, is still valuable, I believe. Yeah, I actually didn't even, this is a perfect segue, I didn't even mean to talk about this. I was thinking about talking about it, but it wasn't going to because I had other things to talk about, but I might as well talk about it briefly because you've sort of segued us into it. But uh, back in 2011, I bought um, an Apple iPad. It was kind of sort of like a college graduation slash birthday present to myself. Um, and it was an iPad 2. It was the second generation one. Um, it was it had 32 gigabytes of storage, which was like a whole lot at the time. Um, and it hasn't been that long. I mean, I bought it in summer of 2011. It, we're approaching summer of 2019 right now. And probably about two or three, actually, it's probably longer than that. Maybe like two or three years ago, I stopped using it just because I kind of got to a point where I didn't really like use it a whole lot anymore. And like an iPad to me, it's one of those things that's like, it's a kind of a fun novelty thing to have, but it's not like... I didn't buy it to like replace a computer or anything. I did do a lot of writing on it at the time. Like I wrote a lot of game critics reviews on it back in the day. I would just take it to like a coffee shop down the street and I had a Bluetooth keyboard and everything. Um, and I enjoyed using it, but you know, I mean, it's no surprise that Apple products or even just like mobile phones and tablets in general, like they phase out really quickly. Like there's a new version released every year. And so by the time, you know, probably about three years ago or so, it pretty much got phased out to the point where, like, it wouldn't even really work that well anymore. And um, as I was reading Doug's book, I downloaded a version of it on my phone, and I was kind of, like, reading it on my phone, and I was like, man, I don't really want to read this whole book, like, on a mobile phone. And so I went, like, digging around for my iPad last night, and I found it, and I plugged it in, and I haven't, I literally haven't even opened it in probably, like, a year. And, uh, and, I, uh, and I, like, plugged it in. And let it charge, and you know, it still turns on and everything. But it's like, it's it's almost like a weird like time capsule of technology because there's like apps on it that aren't even available on the app store anymore. Like there's yeah. a game um, that I played a while back. It's called Today I Die Again, and it's a very good sort of like um, interactive poetry game in a weird way. It's got really great music. Um, and it, I remember at the time it was kind of like a tiny like indie classic and I remember hearing people talk about it and I played it and I loved it but that game is not even a thing anymore so now I have this weird like iPad relic that barely works like it, it's not even that old and it's it still has like four gigs available in storage on it so it's not like filled up and it's just weird because like 
just like swiping the pages of the screen left and right takes like several seconds for the next screen to come up. If I have to type anything, I was trying to type my password into iTunes last night on it. Literally every time I pressed a button on the on the digital keyboard, it would take like seven whole seconds for every individual key press to register. And I'm like, man, this thing is not even that old and it's already so outdated. It has games on it that aren't even available anymore. So like, I feel like a responsibility like to like keep it charged and keep it ready in case like I want to go back and play that poetry game that is not available anymore. But it's just weird how quickly technology moves on and how like it's just like a weird like snapshot in time on my iPad of like what I had at the time. A lot of it I can't get anymore. I can't even software update it anymore because like, you know, at a certain point, Apple stops rolling out updates for older devices. So it's just a very strange experience considering like that thing wasn't cheap and it's already like totally so outdated that I can't even really use it at all anymore. Yeah, dude. I mean, I guess, I mean, a couple things spring to mind. Number one, fuck Apple because they forced that stuff to stop being good way. I mean, realistically, you could be able to use that thing for a long time if Apple kept supporting it or if they didn't at least sync it. But like, you know, a lot of stuff has come out lately about how Apple kind of forces um, obsolescence on some of the products to keep their profits up and to keep people buying the latest model, which I think is kind of bullshit. Um, that was one reason why we actually stopped buying iPhones because I just kind of, I just felt like it was so dirty and disingenuous where I had an iPhone and it was still good, but it wasn't running anything and it wasn't being updated, you know, basically forced me to buy the new model, but it's like, I would have bought one eventually. I just wasn't buying new ones fast enough for Apple, Apple's liking. Right. And so they were forcing my old unit, which was still fine to just stop working. That really pissed me off. And so I kind of got out of the Apple ecosystem. I'm glad I did. But along the same lines, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. Like it's, and again, this kind of brings us back to the discussion that we have every so often about archiving and saving. And we kind of touched on this in Doug's discussion a little bit, but it's like, you know, I, I think one, the, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but I've heard it enough and I've heard a lot of people talking about it where I think one of the biggest things that we are fucking up as a society who is now kind of electronic is that we are not archiving enough of anything. Like we are letting so many things pop up and vanish and because it costs money to save or people just don't think about it or they don't want to put in the time to do it or whatever we're like losing all these little tiny little pieces of art or little pieces of expression that would be so great like the art game you mentioned or you know there's a bunch of other games that are just like delisted and i'm not saying any of them are like you know i'm not saying they're like we're, we're losing like moby dick or war and peace or anything i mean maybe they're not <laughs> classics but at the same time i think it's a loss and ultimately, when you see like art in an aggregate, you can kind of learn a lot about the time period or about the people who are making those things at that time. Um, you know, things have quietly been um, vanishing from the PSN store, uh, from the Switch. I was actually, even the Switch, the Switch is like brand new. It's like Nintendo's most current console. And I was going to my list of um, my wish list because I know I've mentioned this before. I go to the wish list every like once, at least once a week to see what's on sale because that shit goes on sale all the time and i love buying games for a dollar two dollars so i went to go look at some of the things that were on sale and i started seeing a couple things were removed things that i had meant to buy didn't buy because they weren't on sale yet now they are no longer listed on the switch store and i'm like god damn like this the switch is like new i mean it kind of it kind of worries me from the perspective of losing art but it also worries me from the perspective of a consumer if i had bought that game and deleted it because it ran out of space would i not be able to re-download it again I mean, what does it mean that this game is removed from the store? I mean, it just kind of makes me very unsettled. And so I kind of would like to, like, you know, again, have something more permanent um, and just kind of, you know, have something that just lasts a little bit longer. I know that's kind of a human desire for permanence, which is kind of an illusion in general, but still a little bit more permanence, I think, would be good. 
Um, you know, kind of speaking of which, and I'll segue off your segue. <laughs> um, segue, segue. Uh, my son, I don't know how this happened, but he, we were watching TV or something, movie. I don't know what it was. We watched a lot of old movies and a lot of old TV. And he saw somebody have a cassette Walkman on a show. And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a Walkman. And he's like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's like it has tapes. And he's like, what are those? And I'm like, well, this is what, you know, I'm Googling all the shit as we're talking. Which is, I mean, as a homeschooler, Google is so clutch, dude, right? I just Google anything and it's like, here it is. Uh, so I'm like, this is a picture of a cassette. What does it do? Okay, well, this is, you know, it's got tape inside and this is how it works and it's got music. And he's like, oh, man, it's awesome. I want one of those. And I'm like, dude, that's like ancient. He's like, no, 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 I want one. I want one. So we've been kind of watching Amazon for a couple weeks and he finally found one that was like, still new in the package pretty cheap pretty cheap um and he's like oh there it is i want to get that so we just ordered it a while ago it came today uh he was very excited he's like i want to go to the music store right now and get some tapes to play oh on my sale. god and we have a lot of vintage music stores around here i can think of at least three that are within like a couple miles off the top of my head so there's there's some around here i don't know if they're just cds only or if they got tapes who knows maybe we'll go to the salvation army or something dig around in their bins i mean i don't know but i'm like we'll find a tape somewhere and so he got it he we we got the package we opened it up it was brand new still in the package had never been opened it's a, a cassette player and then it's got like the little little headphones you know and so he opened up the package and like the headphone pads crumbled into petroleum dust as we touched them <laughs> it was so old it just disintegrated into this like schmutz and smudge and i'm like oh my god what is going on? And I, I dumped the shit out of the package. I mean, the metal parts are still fine, and the, the frame of the headphones were still fine, but it was, like, gross and sticky. I'm like, oh, this is nasty. Okay, we're throwing this away. We'll get you some new headphones. But the actual tape player still works perfectly. Brand fucking new. So I think tomorrow we're going to make a trip down to, like, our local music stores. We're going to try to find him some cassette tapes, and he's going to be jamming to the oldies, man. I think we're on the cusp of a new era here. That's incredible. There's a um, a YouTuber that I watch, and she does like some. She she kind of does a lot of stuff. She does a lot of like beauty videos on YouTube, but she also has kind of like a strong social justice presence and like a you know like a moral center, which I like. Her name is Abby Williamson, but she also she lives in Seattle, and she's also a, like a concert photographer. So she does she doesn't like vlog about it a lot, but she talks about like you know going to shows. She's very into the music scene and photographs a lot of like rock bands in the Seattle area and. I remember her showing just a couple weeks ago, like one of a band that she likes um, recently released their new album on cassette tape. And it was just like such a funny thing because like literally nobody releases anything new on cassettes anymore. And so I thought that was kind of like a cool like vintage. It felt very like Seattle, like Pacific Northwest to me that like a band would do that up there, that they would release their new album on a cassette. So I thought that was pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, I was thinking we're going to have to like get him started listening to like, I don't know, like Blondie or Huey Lewis or something. I mean, whatever, <laughs> whatever tapes I can find, like I'll have to be scouring around and, you know, I mean, I know that there's decades in, of, of music on tape, but I mean, how much of it still exists? How do you find it? Does it still work? I mean, that tape rots after a while. I mean, I was trying to explain to him how those tapes were just not really great because like, you know, they would get pulled out of the cassette or you have to like, find a pencil and like wrap them back up and maybe they get twisted or they get too hot or something and you know i mean it's it's not a great technology but he he really loves it a lot so we're gonna I'll, i will report back about our adventures in finding cassette tapes so that was uh, a little noodle thing that we've been doing lately um i got a couple of tv shows to talk about man but what else do you what else you got to talk about 
Um, well, I've got like two main things. Um, the first one being, uh, I talked about this last week that I was going to be going to um, Houston for the weekend, and now I have been to Houston for the weekend. So I'm back. I went to Comic Palooza for the weekend, which is one of Texas's biggest, um, sort of like gaming slash uh, anime slash. Uh, whatever kind of um uh convention like just like all that kind of stuff thrown together um and um the spidey team you went down as uh as cory cory peter parker <laughs> i did yeah i uh, i cosplayed for the first time um everybody in the spidey team thought my cosplay was great but i don't really think anybody at the actual con like realized that I was cosplaying, which is fine. You know, I, I wasn't in a head-to-toe spandex suit, you know, so obviously it wasn't, um, like, a huge a huge thing. I was just wearing pretty casual clothes. But, um, but yeah, I kind of photographed them all weekend and photographed some other people and met a bunch of people. And I had a good time, but it was very, like... Um, it was just, like, a lot for me. Like, the, the con was pretty big, and there were a lot of people there, and there were times where we were walking through... Um, the convention center with the Spidey team, and and like we lit, we could not make it like three steps without people stopping and asking them to take pictures. And then once one person would stop them to take pictures, then like people would basically just like start lining up behind them to take pictures with them, which is great. I mean, I don't want to take that away from anybody. Like, obviously, I wouldn't want them to be like, oh no, no, no photos, please, no photos, please. But like, it was just like I kind of wanted to like take pictures of them because that's why I was there. And then you know they were um, you know basically being pulled all over the place for just like you know random people that were going to take pictures. So it was like. I mean, like, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to be rude about it. Like, it's fine. But I was just, like, a little frustrated, which is more on me than it was on anybody else. Um, and also, like, back at the hotel, they got a really cool, like, so it was kind of basically like a two-bedroom apartment that was kind of, like, repurposed into a hotel that they rented. And it was, like, pretty nice. Like, it had, like, a full kitchen and a living room and, like, a pull-out couch bed and then two bedrooms with, I think, both had queen beds and they both had air mattresses in the room. Like, they brought their own air mattresses. There were two bathrooms. So it was, like, a pretty big uh, space. I mean, and it should have been because there were a lot of us there. I think there were, like, eight of us staying in the room. So um, there were a lot of people there. And But it was just, like, it was kind of, like, a lot because I'm one of those people where I'm, I'm kind of, like, an extroverted introvert if you will where like I prefer to keep to myself and I'm not like I can be you know very like kind and you know kind of like outspoken and nice and courteous and everything like if I need to be like I don't really have a problem with that but on a day-to-day basis if I'm not required to be like outgoing or anything like that then I just generally just kind of keep to myself and just being around that many people for like three days straight was just kind of like draining for me and pretty much like all of Saturday like evening whenever we got back to the hotel I just kind of like hid out in like one of the spare bedrooms and was just kind of like on my phone and because they were like you know they were out in the living room and they were all like drinking and talking and they had like loud music playing on the tv and like that's fine like I wasn't mad at anybody but I just kind of needed like to decompress a little bit so I kind of just like hung out in the back bedroom and it actually worked out really well because like I I was just kind of sitting back there and every once in a while somebody from the living room would come back and be like, hey, like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I would basically just be like, yeah, I'm totally fine. I just like, there's a lot going on and I just kind of need to like separate myself from everything. And because I was in a hotel full of nerds, like they pretty much understood it too. And 
um, you know, there was a guy who came back and, you know, checked on me and we were totally having like a great conversation and everything and, you know, discussing it. And then like somebody else came back and we were having a good chat. And so like, I don't, I didn't ha necessarily have a problem talking to like one or two people at a time, but like whenever you insert me into a room that has like eight other people, like I'm not, I'm not gonna like talk over people to talk. Like I'm not one of those people. I never do that in a group. I will never talk over people just to be like, oh, here's what I wanna say. So I just, you know, instead of just standing there and being quiet, I was just like, oh, I'm just gonna go chill in the bedroom. You know, like I don't really, um, you know, I'd rather just kind of hang out back here and kind of be away from the crowd. And luckily people were cool with it and like everybody understood, but. Um, but it was a pretty good weekend. I mean, I am like the drive there and back is about five to six hours. And like knowing what I know now, like driving all the way there and like the parking situation was not very good because the hotel that we stayed in only had one parking spot per room and you had to have like a parking tag. And so like finding and like almost everybody drove separately. So it was kind of a nightmare. So like everybody, we all like, kind of like had to find our own parking spots around town and all the parking spots were fucking expensive because they were all like garages and stuff. And so, I mean, from the time I got there on Friday night until leaving on Sunday, I ended up spending $90 just to park my car in different garages around town, which was um, kind of ridiculous, but I also didn't really have a choice, like, cause there wasn't really cheap parking anywhere, at least not cheap parking that I could just stay overnight. Um, so it, it was, I don't know. It just like, I'm kind of thinking, already thinking about next year, like what I want to do this again, what I want to drive back, what I want to pay this much to do it. Um, cause like the passes were pretty expensive. The parking was expensive and I had to drive like uh, five hours, five to six hours there to five to six hours back. And that, that's a basically like one full tank of gas, which is about $20. So, um, I mean, I had a good time and I'm trying not to be like a downer about it, but I'm just thinking like logistically, like, would it be worth it to do it again next year? Like trying to weigh like how much fun I had and how like the pictures I got versus like, you know, going there and back. And I'm kind of undecided on it right now. But I mean, I didn't have, I'm probably painting the story as if I had like the worst time in the world. And I really didn't, I had a good time. Um, I just don't, I haven't yet decided if it was worth all the trouble to get there and back and everything. Um, but I definitely don't regret going. Like I didn't have a terrible time. It was just, it was just like a little, it's just a lot for me. It's a little bit much for me, I guess is the best way I can sum it up. No, man, I totally hear you. Um, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I am definitely an introvert for sure. Um, which is weird because my job, has me interfacing with people all day long. So it's not like I can just like be in some office and not talk to anybody. I mean, my job will literally take me um, in front of people all day long. I will often be up on a stage. I mean, I've been on stage. Uh, the most people I've ever been in front, I think it was in front of 40,000 people one time. And so that's like not a place that I would normally want to be. Uh, but that's where my job takes me. But I think being an introvert is not, it's not as simple or it's not quite how most people think of it. I know a lot of people think like introvert means, oh, you're really shy. You don't like people. An extrovert is like, oh, you like people and you're outgoing. Like, I think it's more nuanced than that. And I think uh, my wife and I talk about this all the time. Um, I think being an extrovert means that you get energy as a person from other people. So like interacting with people, talking to people, being around people makes you feel happy and it, it fires you up and you feel good when you're doing it. And I think being an introvert means you you regain your energy by kind of like keeping to yourself or just like, you know, chilling out you know like like being around people as an introvert i find to be really draining and is really um it's almost sensory overload sometimes and so i totally get what you're saying it's like when when my wife uh, my wife has i'm not a huge family but you know they get together like once or twice a year 
I hate it. I fucking hate it because <laughs> they're all extroverts. Like every single one of them, except for me and my wife, are extroverts. Uh, and so they don't understand why I don't like to like party all fucking day long. They all want to talk. They all think I'm weird when I need a few minutes to just kind of just decompress a little bit. It's just kind of like what you're saying. Um, the last time that we got we had a big family get together, I kind of hung out in the back room, kind of <laughs> like what you were doing in the hotel room. And they thought I was like suicidal or I was on drugs or I had a problem <laughs> oh or something or I hated them or something. And it's like, no, man, I just I don't want to be in a room full of like eight or nine people all shouting to be heard over each other. And like, if you guys like it, that's fine. Like, I'm not I'm not tearing it down or anything. I'm not, you know, I'm not insulting it. I'm just saying it's not for me. And I am literally one of the only people in this entire house who does not enjoy that. And so to be in a house full of people who love it is exhausting. So it's kind of the same thing for like, that's kind of why I stopped going to like E3 or why I stopped going to like conventions. Cause we get invitations to go to those places all the time. And I never, I never want to go because uh, it's just, it's really overstimulating. And I go to PAX because it's down the street and I can be there for like eight hours and come home and then I'm back in my safe space. Right. I come back to my house I got my own bed, I got my own food, I got my own couch, and I can kind of just chill. Uh, but if I was, you know, because I did it when I was younger, and to go to E3 or to go to something like that, press junkets or whatever, and, like, you're there at a place all day long, and then they want to do something with you that night because they don't want you to be bored, and then you go back, and you're, like, it's a weird hotel room, and you're just, like, strung out and tired and just feel shitty all the time. So I get what you're saying about going to a place can sometimes be a lot. Like, it is just a lot. Like, if you're not the outgoing person who, like, thrives off of that, it can be pretty, it can be really like enervating, just really draining on a person. So I, I get you 100%. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly how I felt most of the weekend. Like nobody necessarily did anything wrong. I was just like, exactly. I just, yeah, I just like needed time to myself. And I mean, luckily, I'm glad that we weren't, that we had the hotel room we did because most hotels, you know, it's basically just like one giant room. And I, if that had been the case, I mean, I don't know, maybe I would have closed the bathroom door and sat in the bathtub all night or something but like it was nice that they were actually separate bedrooms in this place and I could just kind of go and hang out in the side room but um but I had a good time I took like I took 1307 pictures which is actually fewer than I thought I took at the time and I've been slowly working my way through kind of editing those and getting them ready and I met a lot of good people that that's probably the thing that I like the most about going to conventions like this really is it's nice to see people that I know and it's like nice to see the Spidey team and obviously like I like all of them and it's great to photograph them and everything but I do like meeting new people photographing new people and it's nice to see like you know most cosplayers at cons they um you know people stop them for pictures all the time but what they stop them for is for like you know, a shitty cell phone picture that their friend takes of them, like, standing in front of a booth or something. Whereas whenever... I'm not trying to be, like, elitist here, but, like, whenever I stop people, like, I stop so I can, like, photograph them, like, a real... not. I mean, a cell phone photo is a real photo, but, like, photograph them, like, as a professional photographer. And so it feels nice whenever, like... I don't know, like, you can tell whenever people appreciate that you're, like, really putting in the work to photograph them and that it's not just, like, a, hey, I want to get a quick picture with you. And, like, I photographed a guy at SyphaCon, which was in Lake Charles a couple months ago, um, who did a spike from um, Cowboy Bebop cosplay. And he has gone viral, I think, a couple times for a Gambit from X-Men cosplay that he has. And he, he has this, like, phenomenal Gambit cosplay. And he brought it to Comic Palooza. And I met up with him to take some pictures and I asked him, um, as we were kind of changing locations, I was like, Hey, like, you know, have you shot with anybody else this weekend? And he was like, no, you're the only one I've shot with. 
and I was like, oh, awesome. I was like, well, then, you know, I kind of have my work cut out for me. And he was like, well, whenever, he was like, whenever I saw your pictures, because I met him at CypherCon, and he was like, whenever I saw your pictures from CypherCon, he was like, I was really excited that you were coming to Comic Palooza, and I knew I wanted to shoot with you. And it just, like, it just, like, warmed my heart in that moment. Like, knowing that I, I have only known this guy for maybe, like, two hours, you know, met him just a few weeks ago. I've only shot with him once, and then... You know, the pictures that I turned around for him, I guess, impressed him so much that he was, like, super excited that I was going to be a comic palooza. So that made me that made me feel good. So it's just nice, like, to feel that way. And, like, I appreciate them taking their time to shoot with me and then, you know, them appreciating the pictures and everything. So that's definitely something I really like. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, I mean, I just, it's just kind of a little postscript to this. I mean, I think it's – I mean, I totally get what you're saying. And I really want to be clear to our listeners, like – I, cause I, I feel you on this like really hard. Like I, I love meeting new people. I love, you know, getting out and stuff. But I think that the difference is like, we just, you can only do it for so long. Like it's, it's not an all day thing. Like I love like, yeah, okay. We'll go to this social place and we'll meet people and go do a thing and then like come back. And then it's like, okay, I want to just chill for a while. Like <laughs> I need like, you know, like two hours of social. I need like two hours of quiet time. So that's how I roll. And I don't want to come off like somebody who just like stays in a cave and doesn't want to meet anybody. I mean, that's <laughs> not true. I don't think that's true for anybody. I just think it's how people get their energy is slightly different and not everybody is the same. And I don't think one is worse than the other. Although I do think that introverts like us tend to be pigeonholed as being antisocial, which I think is hundred percent not true. Yeah, totally not true. Like the best way I can sum it up. And this is what I told people over the weekend is like, I think I told a, a couple of people like, like, yeah, I, I really like being social until I don't like being social. And yeah, then I really don't yeah. like being social. <laughs> Fucking so. 100% true, dude. I'm right with you on that. 100%. Uh, yeah. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's switch gears a little bit. I have something that we still need to talk about at, at the end of this thing, but we're going to hold on to that for a second. Let me run some just random shit by you real quick. Um, this is a game-related thing. I'm just going to throw it out here because it's not, it's not anything. You, I know, I know, I know, I know. Breaking <laughs> protocol. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I just wanted to toss out, I mean, I think I told you this already, but just throw it out to the listeners if they're listening to the banter, uh, that somebody published an article, I think it was at Waypoint, I don't know who it was, I didn't find this out, I'm not taking credit for this, but somebody said they got to the end of Days Gone, which is the new zombie motorcycle open world game from Sony Bend Studios, I think, and they were saying, and I, I mean, I hesitate to say that this is a spoiler, I mean, maybe... It's more of an Easter egg than a spoiler. I mean, I guess I'm just going to say it here. Okay, so I guess if you don't want to be spoiled for something that might not even be a spoiler for Days Gone, I guess skip ahead like a minute or so. But like, anyway, people were saying that if you if you find a couple Easter eggs and find some clues and you finish Days Gone and there's this other stuff you can do, like I guess it's not really out in the open, but basically they're saying that the world in Days Gone, which is full of zombies, it's post-apocalypse, you know, awfulness, whatever, whatever, that is actually the same world that uh, the Siphon Filter games, which we talked about a while ago, which we were both fans of, uh, starring Gabe Logan as the C-Team, um, you know, spy, not on the level of a Sam Fisher, but kind of like Sam Fisher's sad younger cousin or something like that. Um, <laughs> that is the world. And so they're saying that there's connections where if you read those files, apparently the virus that turns everybody into a zombie was something created by one of the bad guys from the siphon filter world and so they're saying it's a pretty logical leap to say that maybe gabe failed his last mission and oh, the no. virus got out and so the world that is left is the this zombie filled world and uh one of the weapons if you collect these doodads or whatever and do whatever you know whatever secret thing you need to do you can actually assemble uh gabe logan's famous taser 
which you could shoot and stun guys, but if you held the trigger down, you would eventually set them on fire, <laughs> which is what Siphon Filter was. I mean, that was good times back in the day, dude. I don't know if you did that. I did that all the time. I thought that was really fun. Uh, but you can find his stun gun, and it has his actual, like, his initials says GL on it, and it's the, literally the same gun. So people are saying it's not like a sequel or anything, but kind of a neat little Easter egg for people who maybe remember Siphon Filter and who are playing Days Gone now. Honestly, that got me more interested in the game after I knew about that rather than rather than anything else. I was like, oh, that's so cool because I really have this uh, fondness for Siphon Filter. So, I mean, how do you, how do you process, process that information, Corey? Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about it because I... I, I mean, I have Days Gone on my Gamefly queue right now, but I'm not, like, particularly excited to play it because I've probably said, like, a million times on the show that I'm just, like... I mean, first of all, like, I'm not that into open-world games anymore. Like, it's got to be pretty special for me to want to get into it and for me to want to keep playing it. And, like, I'm also super not into zombie games. I know, I know, Resident Evil 2 came out earlier this year and I loved it and everything, but, like, Resident Evil 2, there's, like, a big nostalgia factor there for me, and plus it's Resident Evil, but whenever like these new IPs come out and it's like, oh, it's a zombie game. I'm like, oh, like that's, that's all like, couldn't you have done something else? Like, come on, like you had a chance to do something like really original here. Um, and so like days gone, I haven't really been, I haven't really been hyped at my hype number for this is like zero. Like I'm not hyped at all for it. Um, however, I still want to try it and just like see what I think. But whenever you told me about that the other day, um, uh, I did. It does actually make me want to play a little bit more because I do like the Siphon Filter games. Um, there hasn't been a Siphon Filter in a very long time. And I didn't realize it until maybe like a few days before you told me that, 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 that it is the same studio that used to make the Siphon Filter games. So I guess I had never really thought about like where they've been, you know, like because there has never been like a tease to a new Siphon Filter game or anything. So I just assumed that the studio had like shut down or something. Like I didn't really know, but I had no idea it was the same studio that was working on this. So um, knowing that that little like Easter egg bit is in there is pretty cool to me. And I mean, it's probably not going to be like, like the, the game making moment that's going to like make me fall in love with the game. But I do like when games do that, when like developers... Um, cause I can't, I mean, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right now, but there, I know there's been times before where developers will like insert little things from like their other franchises into their current franchise, you know, just to kind of like give a little nod to stuff that they've worked on. And I like that. And it makes me, um, makes me like, maybe has pushed my hype level to like one out of 10 for this game. Now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you might think this might be my jam, but I, I am also like at a zero or a one, um, and nothing against Sony Bend. I mean, I think they have done some really great games in the past. Uh, but I don't know. I just am not in the mood for, like, another open world. And I've heard it's really long. And I'm not up for, like, really long games. And I don't know. Just I just uh, Nothing about it was really clicking with me, even though it might seem like my jam. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But the Siphon Filter thing definitely kicked me up one more notch also. But uh, whatever. We'll talk about it when we get to it. It's on my Gamefly queue uh, also, but I have no idea when it's going to get here. It's not at number one or anything, so who knows. But anyway, let me move on really quickly. Uh, I saw the movie Bumblebee the other day. Uh, the Transformers, I don't want to call it a reboot, although it is kind of like a reboot with a new director, which is not Michael Bay. Um, have you seen this movie, Corey, or no? I have not seen it, but I've seen previews for it. And I also heard that it was... Um surprisingly good are the reviews that I heard whenever it came out. Yes. The director of this film is the same guy that did, uh, I want to say like, um, Coraline. 
and he did Kubo and the Two Strings, and oh. he did um, the other one that they did that was kind of like a zombie movie, and it was like a stop-motion kids zombie movie. Witty, what is the name of that movie? The zombie what, movie? It wasn't The Corpse Bride, was it? No. Witty. Was that Tim Burton? What's the name of that zombie movie that we watched <laughs> the other day? The one, the stop-motion one. The the pause while Brad asks his son what movie Paranorman. Paranorman. Okay, okay. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. Great radio, but I, I, it was going to bug me. So this guy knows about making kid-friendly, engaging films. All those are pretty good movies. Like, I'm not going to say... I mean, Kubo was pretty awesome. Have you seen Kubo, by the way? I have not seen any of these movies. Oh, dude. Kubo, like, out of all those, you should you should definitely watch Kubo. I think that has a lot of appeal to anybody, not just kids or people who like animation. That's a pretty badass movie just all on its own. It's pretty good. Uh, but Paranorman is neat, and Coraline was neat also. So this guy is, he's like a, you know, legit director who knows how to, like, make films that are approachable. Um, which is good, because Michael Bay is a fucking dumbass. He ruined, he has <laughs> ruined the Transformers franchise. He has shit all over that, and I just, I'm so mad at him. Because the first movie was, like, okay. Not great, but it was okay. And they just got worse and worse and worse. And I don't know why people kept going to see him. I don't know how he got to make like four more movies after that. Like as a Transformers fan, lifelong Transformers fan, uh, I'm just mad as hell at what he did to that franchise. I am not on board. That dude is on my shit list. Um, if I ever see him in an alley, I will punch him in the nose because he has ruined the franchise. So I was really not caring about Bumblebee at all. But when I started hearing from people that, oh, wait a minute, this is actually not too bad. I got kind of interested. We rented it for like uh, three or four bucks on iTunes or something. And I got to say, it actually was pretty good. Like, it was pretty good. Um, I would say that if anybody out there who is a Transformers fan like me, who is also really sick of Michael Bay's bullshit and just really upset about where the franchise has gone, this is the time when you come back to it because it was legit good. Um, they kind of... I mean, I, I don't. I guess they're just ignoring, like, the last four or five films. It does kind of feel like a reboot where they talk about... They show the Transformers back on Cybertron, and they have them all correct. Like, they look right. Michael Bay did not even understand what the Transformers are supposed to look like, which was huge. I mean, there's, like, years and years of toys and films and TV shows and comic books that he could have based those movies on, and he threw it all out the window and made his own little rust buckets that looked awful. They looked like garbage. So this director, he understood what the Transformers were supposed to look like, which was great. He got the proper voice actors for some of it, which was also great. Um, he knew what Cybertron looked like, which is the home planet of the Transformers. He knew that they had different forms on Cybertron. That was all good, like checking the boxes. Um, so they kind of rebooted the whole thing. And it tells the story of Bumblebee coming to Earth, who is the small, yellow, traditionally shown as a Volkswagen Beetle car. Um, comes to Earth by himself, gets his voice box ripped out because the modern Bumblebee cannot talk, which I find to be kind of lame, but is how most people know him these days because of Michael Bay. Um, and they kind of retconned that a little bit. And then he meets a girl in the 80s who is going through some family troubles, uh, which is like the human angle. Uh, and it's just good. The, the girl is cool. She's like a real can-do, um, stand-up-on-her-own-two-feet kind of like, you know, real cool chick. And he's a cool car. They do some fun stunts and neat things happen. He looks pretty good. Like, he's, he's not 100% away from the Michael Bay type, but he looks way better than most of the Bay robots do. Um, so it seems like they're kind of finding a middle ground there, which is okay, better, you know, little baby steps, I guess. Uh, but it was good. Lots of heartwarming moments. Um, human element was there, cool action. Uh, Bumblebee was a cool character. And it was just a really, like, it was nice to watch a Transformers movie that wasn't a pile of garbage. And it was just, <laughs> it was good. It was good. Not great, 
but way better than the last like four or five movies have been. And I'm happy to see somebody finally trying to get this franchise back on course. So hopefully they will continue that uh, route and we'll see where the next one takes us. I have a fun fact about this movie. Did you know that the woman who plays the lead, her name is Haley Seinfeld. She is the woman who voices Spider-Gwen in Into the Spider-Verse. You know, actually, I did know that, but the only reason I know that is because we watched Bumblebee, and I didn't know who she was. I was not familiar with her at all. And it just so happens that I bought a copy of Into the Spider-Verse from good old um, Past Them Sticks on Twitter. Hello, Mikey. What's up? Um, he sold me his copy of um, Into the Spider-Verse, and we watched it immediately after that. And I'm like, wait a minute. That voice sounds kind of familiar. And then we IMDb'd it. And I'm like, holy shit, that's literally the same person. So that's that's the only reason I know that. But that is actually a really good fact. So she, I, she's on my radar now. I didn't know who she was before. But she's now in two movies, which I give a thumbs up to. And uh, she's she's got some cred building up with me. Also, so rewatched Into the Spider-Verse? Still amazing, dude. What a fucking amazing movie that is. That movie is fire. It is so good. Like, I wasn't planning to watch it. I was going to go do something else, but my son put it on. And I'm like, oh, I'll just watch like five minutes of it. And like, you know, and I'm just like, I just end up sitting down watching the entire thing, like laughing, holding my breath. Like, still the best movie ever, dude. What a fucking amazing movie that is. Yeah, I watched it when I came home from Comic Palooza. Like, I got home and I think I like ate dinner and took a shower. And then I was getting ready to start looking over photos that I had taken. And I was like, oh, haha, it'd be kind of funny if I like watched into the Spider Verse while I'm looking over pictures of Spider Man. So that's exactly what I did. And yeah, it's it's the third time I've seen it, and it's still so good. Like, it's a perfect movie. It's so good. It's gonna be one of those movies. There are very few movies where. Where if it's on, that I will stop whatever I'm doing and watch it. Like, there's not very many movies where I can say that. Like, if it's like Big Trouble in Little China. If that movie's playing, I will drop whatever <laughs> I'm doing and I'll go watch that movie. Um, Aliens, the second one, if that's playing, I'll drop whatever I'm doing and I'll watch that movie. But, like, th- those are, like, the only movies where I'll just stop everything. And I think this is probably the third one. I think Into the Spider-Verse, if that's on, I'm dropping whatever I'm doing and I'm watching. Oh, Pacific Rim, that one too. So there's four. <laughs> Four movies. You got movies like that, like where you just life stops while that movie's playing. Uh, well, I mean, I I'm never really in a position where there's just like a movie happening around me. Like usually, I put the movie on to watch it. But I mean, I guess like I'm trying to think like if Patrick happened to be like watching something, but like I don't think that Patrick would ever put on a movie that like that would be that way for me. Like maybe like Blade Runner twenty forty nine or like into the spider-verse or maybe some star trek episodes or something um i mean if he like has star trek on i'll probably like watch it with him but um yeah i don't know because he he doesn't really just like put movies on like usually if we're gonna watch a movie like we'll sit down and watch it together i think um but yeah so i mean i have movies but i'm never in a situation where they just like happen to be on around me i guess all right all right um, I think that's it for me this week. I got a couple things, but I'm going to hold those back because I want to save those for next week. I think we'll have a little bit of a meteor discussion if I wait and let them percolate a bit. Let's get back to you. I have just one thing to ask you about, and I think this is probably <laughs> going to be your last thing. I was, I don't know where, I think I saw this on Twitter or something. I saw some advertisement come through my feed of some guy, like, it looked like he was washing his face. And I'm like, what is this? What is this thing? And like, I start looking at it and it's like, uh, I couldn't even tell what it was at first. I thought it was like soap or I, I didn't know. And then it's like war paint makeup <laughs> for men. And I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. Like talk about being 
insecure in your masculinity. Um, so I immediately got on the horn with you, and I'm like, Corey, as my good friend who wears makeup, I need you to have your input on this. I need to know your take on this. Uh, so did you check out War Paint Men's Makeup? And if you did, what are your thoughts? I did. I have lots of thoughts. So okay, I, okay. I had, I'm ready. I had, I'd briefly heard of this before you had mentioned it to me. Um, and I can't really remember the circumstances under which I saw it either. I don't know if it was like a Facebook ad or like if I saw it on Twitter or Instagram or something. But I remember seeing it and I remember briefly going to, I mean, I saw it. I thought it was ridiculous immediately, but then I wanted to know more. So I went to their site to actually like look at their products and see what all they had. Um, but I didn't really like deep dive on it. But because you have, because you've asked, I have so kindly like really done my research on this. I actually did it this afternoon and, um, and have come away with some, with some facts and some thoughts and some feelings about it. So basically it is a company called War Paint, which is ridiculous. Let's be real here. It is, it is absurd, uh, dude. It is absurd. <laughs> It's it says so to me, stupid. like, I am embarrassed to talk about makeup. I need to make it seem, like, tough and manly. Like, come on. Come on. Yeah. And, like, the sad thing for me is, like, I honestly think that there is a space in, um, I don't know, like, capitalism or in our society or whatever. Like, I think there is a space where we, like, maybe not need, but where we could use a men's brand of makeup or, like, a super gender-neutral brand of makeup that is, like for everyone that's like equally as inclusive like all the way around or i mean not even just men or women but like you know gender non-conforming or you know anything like that but like basically they have taken that idea and really pushed it to the extreme of like you know every all the packaging is like matte black and everything is like super sort of like <laughs> masculine looking are there you are know, there metal I'm, spikes on the box well no but oh my god there is a there is a brand at target um i think it's called like I can't remember what the name is, but it has the word like rebel in it because of course it does. And there's like a, there's like a lip balm that's called like lethal lip balm. And I'm like, are we serious people? Like we can't just have like lip balm for men. Cause it's a very like, kind of like skincare, like men's kind of skincare focused line. And like the lip balm comes in like a skull packaging and you like twist the top of the skull off and like the lip balm is in there. And it's just like, like I get it, whatever, but it's like so cheesy. And I wish that like, like there is a space in the market for this sort of like general neutral or like men's makeup, but I'm just like not into the idea of like really pushing it to the extreme of like the super like masculine. Like I'm surprised whenever you like open the lip balm, it doesn't like shoot flames out or some shit whenever you <laughs> open it. It's so stupid, but but, like, that aside, like, I just want to run through this a little bit. So I looked at their website, and it's um, it was created by – it's all London-based. It's based in the U.K., and that's where everything is, like, made and shipped and manufactured and sold. Um, the website is very – I mean, the, their branding – I mean, for how ridiculous it is, their branding is really, like, consistent. You know, you go to the website, and, like, the header image on the website is, like, a dude – you know, kind of looks like he's putting makeup on with, like, a sponge. Like, I don't know how much you know about this, but, like, you know, you think about, like, putting makeup on with brushes, like, putting foundation on with, like, a big foundation brush. But, like, a new thing that's kind of come around in the past, maybe, like, I mean, they've always been around, but they've been become very, um, I don't know, successful in the past maybe, like, five years, or, like, sponges. And you, like, you have, like, a little sponge that fits in the palm of your hand, and usually you, like, get it wet. You, like, put it under the faucet, and you, like, rinse the water out so it's just, like, a damp sponge. And then you can actually, like, smooth foundation over your face with the sponge, which sounds really weird, you know, compared to, like, smoothing it out with your hands or smoothing it out with a brush. But it actually, like, 
works really well. And there's like a bunch of different sponges out there. And there's one called the Beauty Blender, which is kind of like, like the elite, like, you know, you think of like the, the, the Q-tips of cotton buds is like the Beauty Blender of makeup sponges, except for a Beauty Blender is like 50 bucks or something ridiculous. I've never bought one because they're expensive. Um, but the picture on the website is like a dude like leaning over a sink and he's got like a kind of a sponge held up to his face. And I kid you not, he's got like full on like neck tattoo that goes like up to his chin. So he, it, the whole vibe is very like, it's just very like super tattooed, almost like a biker kind of punk rock dudes, but it's not punk rock in like a nail polish and like gender neutral way. It's just kind of like, looks like a dude who like has neck tattoos who will like stab you in an alley, but also <laughs> has perfect skin. Like that's kind of like the aesthetic they're going for. Um, and so like I was looking at their products and I've made a handy list of all the products that they have. So they have, um, I'm just going to run through these one at a time and the prices they have a, a shine, like a anti shine face powder, which is not an unusual thing to have. It's translucent. It looks white in the pan, but basically you just brush it over your skin. If you look oily or you look shiny, it just kind of makes your skin look matte. Um, totally a regular thing. I have those at home, but they're not from this brand. Um, they have the one translucent shade. It is $23, which is pretty expensive. Like this, this is very like a mid price range brand. Um, $23 for that. They have a concealer that comes in a pot that you like twist the lid off and you kind of like dab your finger in and then put it wherever you want it. Um, Cause some concealers are really uh, come out of squeezy tubes and they're really like thin consistency. This one looks thicker. Um, it is $23. It only comes in three shades and I'll get to shades in a minute. Um, they have a bronzer, which basically you just brush over your skin to kind of make you look uh, a little bit suntanned, a little more alive. Um, I have two bronzers in my collection. Um, the bronzer is $25. They have a tinted moisturizer. So in the world of makeup, you have generally you have foundation and you have tinted moisturizer. And foundation is more of like has fuller coverage. It's sometimes a little bit thicker, a little bit heavier. And then your tinted moisturizer is basically just what it sounds like. It's more thin. It kind of blends in a lot easier, but it also has a little bit of coverage to it, but it's just like light coverage to just like slightly even you out. They have a tinted moisturizer for $29. It's available in five shades. It's one fluid ounce and one ounce is generally like the pretty standardized size for most foundations. So they're not like far off on that um, at all. Actually, they're spot on because it's one ounce. They, they sell their own face sponge for $8.00. They sell a powder brush, which is really weirdly shaped for $9. They have a foundation, which is also in five shades. It's one ounce for $30. So the foundation is only a dollar more than the tinted moisturizer, which is a little bit weird because usually tinted moisturizers are a little bit cheaper because they tend to give less coverage. Um, and then they have a charcoal sponge, which is like a face washing sponge. It's like just for cleansing. It's not for putting makeup on. There's evidence, I reckon, that charcoal is supposed to be an ingredient that, like, sucks, like, impurities out of your skin. It helps you get cleaner, but it also can leave your skin feeling drier. So there are things out there that have, like, charcoal, I guess, like, infused into them. Um, I have, like, a body sponge that has charcoal in it. I can't really say. I don't really know if it works that well, but I'm, I just believe the hype on the marketing, I guess. And plus, the sponge I have is not expensive. But they have a charcoal face sponge for $9. And then they have a wash bag, which is basically just like a toiletry bag for $18, which I think is really expensive for like a fucking bag, first of all. And 
All of their products are vegan and cruelty-free, which is great. Um, I have no complaints there because vegan makeup, vegan skincare, and cruelty-free makeup, that's like a big thing right now where a lot of people will only buy brands that are vegan or cruelty-free. And the big caveat to that is that there are some brands that choose to sell in China. And once you sell in China, um, if your brand goes to China, you're required to let the Chinese government test on animals. And that doesn't mean they will, but you have to authorize them to. So even if a brand is American and they don't test on animals here, if you sell in China, you have to authorize them to test on animals. So that's kind of like a weird gray area, but obviously this brand is not in China yet. So they are vegan, they're cruelty-free. Um, the makeup line was started kind of by this guy who has like body dysmorphia, which means that basically he doesn't like his body and it's kind of like a mental health thing he has mental health issues one of their products the concealer they donate a certain amount of money to a charity called calm i can't remember what it stands for but it's basically like a men's mental health um, charity which i think is good i'm wondering why they only have that with one of their products and not all of their products it's neither here nor there i guess um but to break down like some of their products, so most of their products exist between $23 and $30, which isn't super expensive, but it's also like a lot more expensive than like drugstore makeup that might be better. Um, and I wrote some examples here. So there's a makeup company called MAC, and that's kind of like a pretty standardized company. They're also mid-price range. Uh, MAC stands for Makeup Art Cosmetics or Makeup Artist Cosmetics which is funny because a lot of people call it MAC Cosmetics, which is like saying ATM machine. Um, but they have a foundation that I own that I really like that's called MAC Face and Body. It comes in 13 shades, which 13 shades is not that many, but it's more than five shades. Um, it's $30 and you get 1.7 ounces. So you get almost twice the amount, you get more shade options, and it's the same price as the War Paint. Um, they have a foundation called Studio Fix, which has... 63 shades. That's like more shades than I think I have ever heard of in any brand ever. Um, that is also $30. It's only one ounce. There is a Walmart brand of all things, a foundation. They have a, there's a brand at Walmart called Hard Candy. They have a new foundation that's called Glamouflage, which is a ridiculous name. Glamouflage, wow. Glamouflage, okay. which I like this foundation. I started using it because I saw a YouTuber that I watched use it. And I decided to buy it because it's only $6. It's 0.67 ounces, which is less than your standard amount, but it's only $6. So I like Glamouflage. I think it's a great foundation. Um, the thing that I like about it is that it gets kind of like oddly like dries into like a rubbery-ness on the skin, which doesn't sound attractive, but it like lets you know that like it's not going anywhere once it's there. Um, so like there's options like... And, like, Fenty, which is uh, Rihanna's uh, makeup line, like, a couple years ago, she launched Fenty Beauty, and they launched with 40 foundation shades, which was, like, a huge um, kind of revelation for the industry. Because there were other brands that were doing just as many shades, but, like, shade range and, like, particularly shades for people of color, that's kind of been a big talking point in the makeup industry for the last couple of years. Because a lot of brands will only bring out, you know, like, three to ten shades or something, and most of them are very, like, light-focused um, but Fenty has 50 shades of foundation now. Their foundation is $35, which is a little bit more expensive than War Paint. And you get 1.08 ounces, so it's a little bit more. I've never tried the Fenty foundation. I think one day I will. Um, but Fenty's very inclusive. 
brand, they mostly feature women in their ads, which bothers me a tiny bit because they really talk about inclusivity, but they talk a lot about color tone inclusivity and not necessarily gender inclusivity, but they do have YouTube tutorials on their channel that have makeup being applied on men. So I think that's nice, but I think they could probably take a step to maybe feature more men or trans or non-binary people in their ads. But you know, that's kind of another discussion, but basically, I mean like, Oh, the last thing that I want to touch on before I talk about overall thoughts on this is that they they have a page on their site that talks about sort of like what they have in their makeup and they talk, I'm going to get real skincare nerdy here for a second. Okay, so okay, we're just, we're going to go for it. They, they talk about different things that they have in their, in their makeup and they don't say which specific products they're in, which is like automatically a red flag. They just sort of blanket statement, like our products are made with, and they talk about like vitamin E and how it's like, good at, I don't know, combating sun damage or something, which vitamin E is not an SPF, so it's not going to combat all of the sun damage because SPF, like the worst thing for your skin is the sun. Like technically we should all probably be wearing SPF every single day on our faces because the sun starts damaging your skin within one minute of walking out the door. Even if it's cloudy, um, sun damage still hits your skin, even if it's through a window. Um, and none of their products have SPF in them. And SPF, like not every cosmetic product has it, but there's a lot of foundations that have SPF built in. So it's kind of like a twofer. Um, but some people put an SPF primer on and then they put foundation over it. So they get the sun protection from their primer and then like their even skin coverage from the foundation. But the big thing is that they claim to have BHA in their products. BHA stands for beta hydroxy acid. And as far as I know, and I am I watch a lot of skincare nerd YouTube, the only BHA that is out there is called salicylic acid. And salicylic acid is made in a wide range of products, like a lot of like Clearasil, um, like they have salicylic acid. Usually 2% is kind of like the standard percentage you get um, because it doesn't damage your skin. That's kind of like the highest, like over the counter you can get without it damaging your skin, but some have one and a half percent, some have 1%. Um, so knowing what I know about BHAs and knowing that salicylic acid is the only BHA that I know of, and the, the special thing about BHAs is that salicylic acid um, exfoliates, it actually gets into your pores and exfoliates dirt out, like, f you know, gets into them and like sort of dissolves dirt from the inside out. And a lot of other acids, there are AHAs, which are alpha hydroxy acids, such as glycolic acid or lactic acid. Those do not actually get into your pores. They sort of dissolve dirt and like dead skin cells on the surface of your skin to bring like your deeper layers of skin up to make you look fresher and more radiant and less dull. But salicylic acid is the only one that actually gets into the skin. So they say, that some of their products have BHA and they don't say which ones. Well, I would say luckily for them, but actually unluckily for them, they have an ingredient list for every single item on their website except for the anti-shine powder. I cannot find salicylic acid on the ingredient list in any product that they make. So I don't know where they're getting off claiming that their products have BHA when I can't find salicylic acid on the ingredients list of any product that they have so like are they lying about it like they talk about having tea tree oil which can also help acne but i read earlier today that tea tree oil basically only helps acne when it's like a five percent concentration and most cosmetic products have like 0.5 percent concentration 
So, like, even if they have tea tree oil, they're probably not, like, medically cleared to use it. And tea tree oil is not FDA-approved to treat acne, whereas salicylic acid and benzoyl peroxide are. And benzoyl peroxide is not a BHA either because it doesn't get into your pores. So I don't know where they're talking about this BHA being in there because I can't find it on any of the ingredients list. So, like, it could be false advertisement. They could mistakenly think that tea tree is a BHA, but it's not. And, like, I am just, like... So, like, not only is the brand kind of ridiculous, not only do they have not very many products with a very selective shade range of all their products, because they only have five shades, they do run the gamut from light to dark, but in order to get away with less shades, your products have to be lighter coverage so that it can kind of, like, blend and not, like, be a weird shade on your face. So if they're, like, claiming to have a foundation and a tinted moisturizer, and that the foundation's supposed to have heavier coverage. How does it have heavier coverage if you only have five shades available, if it doesn't blend out as well? So this brand is just like, I have no doubt that they're like getting people with it. You know, that there's like plenty of dudes who are like, oh my God, finally a makeup brand for me. Like that's not in sparkly packaging or like a hot pink tube or whatever. But like, I just, like, to the guys who are buying this stuff, like, I wish I could just say, like, okay, first of all, like, I'm glad you found something. But second of all, like, just go to a Sephora. Like, yeah, it's kind of scary to walk into a Sephora and be bombarded by a bunch of women with makeup kicked all over their faces asking you, like, hey, can I help you? What do you need? Can I help you? And, like, not knowing what you're doing. Because I even get that going in now. And I know a lot about makeup. But there are a lot of brands out there that are not feminine like there's a brand called bobby brown that does a huge shade range and a lot of different products it's a very makeup artist focused brand almost all their packaging is like black but it's not like matte black and skulls and crossbones and whatever so like bobby brown is a good option it is a little bit expensive but it's a good option like mac that i talked about earlier they they'll have like collections that are maybe like sparkly and pink but most of their like standard packaging is like black or, um, you know, like, clear packaging with, like, black insets and stuff. So, like, I just feel like there's... If, you, if you're, like, this hard up for makeup, like, there's better and cheaper ways to get what you want that have more inclusive shade ranges, that have more options available. But it just would take you, like, getting up and going to a Sephora to look at it or going to an Ulta and looking at it or even, like, a Target or something. And I just... I don't know. It's just, like, this whole toxic mas masculinity thing. Like, I wish that dudes who are buying into this weren't too scared to just, like, go in a store and look at makeup. And, like, I know it's scary, but, like, just go in a store and look at makeup. Like, there are men that work at Sephora. There are men that work at Ulta. I'm sure men go in those stores every single day, and the people that work in there aren't going to, like, frown and shoo you away if you go in the store. Like, they're going to want to help you because they want to make their money. Like, they want to make their commission or whatever. So, like, I would just, I just wish this brand weren't so ridiculous and kind of, like, steeped in toxic masculinity and that it was a little more, like, you know, like, maybe more gender neutral or more inclusive in shades or just, like, didn't sort of, like, wield its, like, big swinging masculinity dick as, like, the reason to buy it. It's just so ridiculous. Like, and I, like I said earlier, I do think there's a place in the market for makeup for men because a lot of makeup is heavily geared toward women. But that doesn't mean that men can't use it. And I just, I think we need a middle ground between war paint, war paint, between war paint and everything else that's out there. And that's just a piece of the market that seems to be missing right now. Wow. Sorry, wow, that dude. was a lot. I, I feel like I have been <laughs> taking a church. <laughs> I took, you took me to church. I got the sermon. 
You threw me in with the choir, and now we're back home. I went the, the, the entire route. You gave me. I, I'm like, hey, Corey, what do you think about war paint? And I, <laughs> you went above and beyond, boy. I, how are you not a dermatologist already, man? You were kind of getting like medical and shit for a while there, and I'm like taking notes about all oh, the salicylic acid of the BHA. I gotta look this up. And, uh, how are you not? A, how are you not a dermatologist? You should be like dispensing prescriptions, diagnosing people's skin. What the fuck, dude? You're holding out on me this whole time. I had no idea you had this much expertise. <laughs> well, I mean, I, it takes a lot of time and money and training to go to dermatology school. So that's part of the reason why. I, I mean, I don't think that's something that I'd ever want to do. The idea of helping people with their skin is appealing to me. But I'm not an expert. I mean, I do, as you can tell by my lengthy rant, that I do, I watch a lot of um, skincare YouTube because I do like watching makeup videos, but I also, I wear more skincare than I do makeup. Like, I don't wear makeup on a daily basis. I actually probably only wear makeup maybe once a week. Like, it's not an everyday thing, but I do try to use skincare like almost every day because skincare is kind of like going to the gym. Like, you have to use it every day and you have to keep up with it in order for it to really make an effect on your skin. Like you can't go run on a treadmill one day a month and then expect to lose a bunch of weight. And it's the same way with skincare. So like you have to be using it every day. You have to keep up with the routine and routines don't have to be complicated. Like there's a million, and this is where like the minutia where a lot of people get lost is there's a lot of products out there. There's AHAs, there's BHAs, there's moisturizers, there's serums, there's face masks. Like there's so much stuff out there, but it doesn't have to be complicated, but there's just so much out there that it's hard to navigate. And it's kind of similar with makeup too. So, I mean, one thing that I do like about War Paint is that they do have a highly edited collection of what they're making. Like they have a foundation, tinted moisturizer, a bronzer, a powder, a concealer, and like, that's it. Like, that's pretty, I mean, they'll probably expand, I'm sure at some point, but having an edited collection is really smart because they don't want to scare men away and be like, oh, here's our brand. We have 600 products. And then you get scared and you don't know what to buy or you don't know what to use. So that I think is definitely something they have going for them that they don't have like a million things out there. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I probably will like never be a real dermatologist or anything. I'd have no interest in going to school for that or paying for it or whatever, but I do know a thing or two about skincare. I would say I think you know a <laughs> thing or three or four, dude. You uh, you you busted out. You dropped some knowledge, dude. That was a major dropping of some knowledge there. So, all right, I am officially in awe. Uh, I, I have nothing that could possibly follow that up. I think we should probably just uh, wrap up banter and and, uh, and move on with the rest of the show. Yes. Absolutely. I feel like we've already recorded a full-length show, and we haven't even gotten to the show yet. I was literally just thinking that. Uh, All right, let's wrap it up, and let's talk about some games. You ready to talk about some games? I would love nothing more. All right, let's do it.